Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? This is Drew, ready to talk about comics with you. I hate you so much. <laughs> I hate you so much. I feel it in my bones. I just It's just right in the very rectum of my soul how much I hate you sometimes. There's just no way that I can give an introduction <laughs> anymore without either throwing you off or making you hate me. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm shivering with anger at you at the moment. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, okay, anyways, um, well, uh, it's undeniable because we won't deny it, but we are here at the end of another year, and as such, we have to acknowledge that by doing a year-end episode, which is what we are going to be discussing today. Last year, we decided to close out our our year by talking about the best fresh starts in comics, and we thought that this year we'd do something, we'd, we'd do a little different take on that. We'd... Uh, we thought we'd do an episode that discussed some of the best endings in comics as we are coming to the ending of another year. Although, by the time you listen to this, there's a good chance the, the new year has already begun. Whatever, that though. is Close enough. That is true. Exactly. Close enough. Close enough. We're not... Happy New Year, everybody. Yes. Happy New Year. I'm not big on details, so let's just, you know... <laughs> the sentiment <laughs> was there. The sentiment was there. I meant well. Yeah. Yeah, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Anyways, <laughs> uh, I can't. I have no retort for that. So I'll see you all there. <laughs> uh, I've got a question for you, Albert. Before we before we uh, get too deep into this, but seeing as how we are going to be talking about some of our favorite endings in various comics. How how much of a spoiler alert do we need to slap on this thing? Are we going to be ruining anything for people, or are we going to just trust that however we discuss these endings, we'll, we'll keep it just vague yet specific enough to explain to people what we enjoy about these endings without completely like ruining the the fun of discovery or how, how are we going to go about this here's what i'd say i think depending on the person that you talk to there is no way to satisfactorily satisfactorily talk about something without ruining some element of it right of whatever mm -hmm. stories that we're talking about so uh depending on who you're talking to like you know, one person's spoiler is another person's, uh, you know, uh, breadcrumb, right? Sure. So, so I think I would personally just uh, lean on the side of uh, of of safety and just say, you know, if if you're someone who doesn't want any spoilers whatsoever, then you know, maybe maybe. We should warn you right now that you should just just be prepared for spoilers. You know, <laughs> we're going to try our best to talk about it in in ways that don't reveal 
anything too substantial, but you know, there are some people who don't want any of that revealed, no matter how minor the de- detail, right? Yeah. You know, I have a friend who who doesn't even watch movie trailers because the trailers spoil too much for him. Exactly, right? See, that's what I'm saying. So these these trailers are the movie hasn't even come out yet. The trailers are meant to uh promote the movie. So you know, there's something there for you to draw you in, but if this person is confident enough to to know that they want to watch whatever it is they want to watch, then maybe they don't need that type of a uh they don't need a trailer. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, uh you know, by all means go live your life, do do whatever you're going to do. Uh you know, don't don't storm the capital or anything, but you know, do whatever <laughs> you're going to do. Um <laughs> but yeah, so that being said, I I would say we should just uh weigh on the side of uh uh caution and just tell people that we're going to be doing spoilers, but realistically, we will try to discuss this in a way that preserves the story as much as possible, un- unless yeah. there's just no way to do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and and another thing I would want to add, at least for the comics that I picked, I don't think any of the things that... I don't think the specific stories that I'm going to discuss have endings where there's any kind of big twist or <laughs> learning what the ending is is going, is going to ruin the story as a whole. I don't think anything I picked is going to be like that. It's It's... Yeah. I try to pick things that uh, approach endings in interesting ways and in different ways, and and that's kind of how I yeah that's how I attacked this exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That sounds right. And um, yeah, I, I I couldn't agree with you more on that. Before we dive straight into the comics, I wanted to talk a little bit about endings in stories in general. You know, just kind of explore the idea of endings. So I guess I'll start by asking you a very basic question and and uh, we'll see where this conversation takes us. But let me ask you this, man. What makes a good ending? And good, you can you know define that on your own parameters. It's just, uh, I don't have any criteria for that. It's just whatever, how do you decide what makes a good ending, Albert? So that's the thing. It's it's a complicated question in spite of its simplicity, um, as most things are on this podcast. And I'd say that there are several types of good endings, and it really just depends on what types of effects you're looking for, right? So mm-hmm. there are some where the entire story is predicated on what that ending is. And like an example of that that I can think of is something like a mystery, right? All of the... Uh, all of the uh, flourishes and elements of a good story can still be there in the build-up to it, but for for a lot of mysteries, it's really about that final reveal that really is the payoff for a story like that. So I can understand how, mm-hmm. for some people, um, those kinds of stories where the ending uh, matters, quote-unquote, like... Mm-hmm. I I could see how that is a feeling that someone would chase or or something that they would look for in the stories that they consume, but I do also think that there are a lot of stories, and these are probably 
well, I assume that they are less appreciated because I appreciate them. And uh, I, I assume that your average person not doesn't appreciate it quite so much, but yeah, our tastes aren't necessarily aligned <laughs> with the masses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I do think there are thematic uh, endings that conclude a story that are substantive and thought provoking and meaningful and uh, evocative. Uh, like I, I'm just throwing a bunch of ad- adjectives out there, but they're, I think they're all apt in that they might close out a story and, you know, there, there's probably examples where the plot of the story aligns with the thematic uh, subject matter uh, that's being explored at the end of the story. But there are mm-hmm. also stories where the the ending doesn't line up with the thematic matter and you might not get a quote unquote satisfying or or necessarily like understandable uh ending to the plot that you've been following but thematically uh the ending that you get is something that in in the context of the entire story that you've been reading uh really has something to say and really uh brings you an emotional closure to whatever it is that you're reading. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. So th- those are, that's probably the long, the, the long way of saying uh, the, my long description of the kinds of endings that I appreciate or what makes a good ending. So would you say that for you personally, primarily what you look for in an ending is emotional closure? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I read things to feel something because I'm so accustomed to feeling nothing. So, mm-hmm. uh, I certainly, yeah, literature and fiction gives us, give us ways to explore emotions that we normally wouldn't experience in our daily real lives. Exactly. 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 I mean, some would call that a little sociopathic, but hey, don't judge me. No judgment here, man. No judgment here. <laughs> unless you uh, unless you uh, go on a sociopathic rampage and <laughs> and murder a bunch of people that I care about, then I guess that would bother me. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, well, again, like, there are certain instances, certainly, where I'll get to a, the ending of something, and if if the plot is well done, and when you get to the end, you get that conclusion, there's a there's certainly a satisfaction to it, right? But mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't limit myself to just the emotional satisfaction. Like, I, I'm uh, versatile enough where I can appreciate all forms of literature um as long as it's done well you know so i don't i don't demand anything from my literature except that it be qualitatively done Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know yeah so there's there are stories that give you that real emotional closure that emotional payoff and some stories that perhaps are a little bit less concerned with the emotional payoff and are more focused on providing you the closure in terms of 
the plot and you know tying things in a knot so that there aren't any dangling threads with you know lingering that leave you with lingering questions about what happens to the characters and whatnot right like there are ways like both i think both types of endings are valid and i'm sure there are even uh other types of endings that don't fall into those categories necessarily and of course there are stories that that end with some kind of melding of of those two things as well yeah absolutely do you feel like there's anything that we're missing <laughs> is there like a third uh type of ending that we're not yeah I describing think so. here i mean there are, i think there are abstract endings you know like there are there are types of stories maybe like on the i don't know postmodern literature does a lot of stuff where um the it's like the journey is so confusing that when even when you get to the end you don't really unless you like reread something or read essays about it yeah it's it's it could be pretty hard to make sense of it and and you know there are there are plenty of of novels uh like that where you you can't really i don't know maybe or maybe i'm just not smart enough to understand and penetrate the depths of the writing on my own well, but there are there are yeah. certainly stories that require a, a lot more brain power to to untangle yeah, yeah. No, I get that. There are some works that are purely a form of artistic expression. I mean, I do think that to some degree that's a cousin to like the emotional satisfaction of whatever that you're reading is. Mm -hmm. um, but there are certain works that are just so experimental and so different that just the exercise of uh, consuming it and experiencing it, uh, that is the that is the gratification in it of itself that you receive, right? Yeah, and yeah. That is certainly not for everybody, and I think there are a lot of occasions where that sort of storytelling is lost on me um, personally, but there there are times that I do appreciate things like that, for sure. Like, one of the one endings that I can definitely think of that I think applies to that description is something like neon genesis evangelion where the ending is pretty abstract and just requires me to watch it several times over just in order to glean what is being said or what is being done but mm -hmm. but even then i do think that there's something emotionally satisfying about that experience too it's, oh yeah absolutely it's, it's not something that exists in a vacuum to only be a stimulant to my like intellectual curiosity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally man here's another question or i guess it's a pair of questions but going on uh and continuing that train of thought about the different types of endings that we encounter in various types of stories I want to ask you if you think that a bad ending can ruin a good story or conversely, can a good ending elevate a bad story? Uh, so this is kind of a question of degrees in which I'd have to say that I do think there are certainly examples where uh, a, a bad ending can ruin a good story or a good ending can elevate a bad story, but there's just there exists this calculus where 
It depends on how bad the story has been <laughs> up to that point or how good the story has been up to that point, right? Right. So I can't I can't objectively just say give it a yes or no kind of answer. Like I'll at the end of the day it's really just about the the mathematics of it all, uh, and just how those things play out. I mean, there are certainly I can certainly think of examples of stories where they were otherwise good stories and the endings were things that threw me off. Uh, they, they, they were personal, they were endings that I probably wouldn't have, they were directions that I wouldn't have gone in terms of the kind of endings that I would have wanted to see or that mm -hmm. I was expecting to see. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there are examples of, uh, cases where I've worked through it in order to still appreciate the work overall but there are certainly examples uh to the contrary where after having read it i i still have an appreciation for whatever it was that i read but admittedly it's less of an appreciation <laughs> hmm. yeah do you want to share any examples or uh yeah i i have one example and uh if I had, yeah, okay, so I'll put it out there, but the the one immediate example that came to mind is, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Daredevil End of Days. Okay. And this is something that was drawn by Alex Maleev and written by Brian Michael Bendis, and this was them Wait, returning. did Maleev draw that one? Um, was it Maleev or was it Sikowitz? I thought it was, uh, it was uh, Klaus Jansen and Sinkovich. I, oh. I can't remember. You're right, you're right. I think you're right. No, you're right. You're right. My bad. My bad. But uh, so this. OK, so uh, this was Brian Michael Bendis returning to a character that made him blow up in his career. It was I mean, he was already pretty big uh, coming into it, but it was just another like story in his resume that just showed how good of a writer he was uh, when he his his run on Daredevil, you know, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Sinkowitz, uh, Bill Sinkowitz was, is an artist who's, uh, he's, he's got a very idiosyncratic style, but it's just, I, I assume that most people look at it and they recognize just how good he is because his, his style is, is a very, it's a painted style that's very different from anything you would normally see in comics. There's this one guy in a comic book shop somewhere, uh, in I forget where in the butthole of California, who looked at it and called it scribbles on paper. But Antioch. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure his parents were siblings. But <laughs> uh you know, hey, that's on him. Whatever. But anyways, um It's interesting because uh, I actually just checked, but uh the art it was penciled by Klaus Jansen and inked by Sinkevich. But uh, Alex uh, Maliev did the covers. That's but why I, was I thought it was Alex Maleev. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to yeah. say uh, Sinkevich's art is interesting because no matter who he inks, the work always kind of looks like his own work. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, like Kevin Nolan because anytime Kevin Nolan inks somebody, that guy's art just looks like Kevin Nolan's art. <laughs> I would love to see him ink uh, like Charles Schultz on Peanuts and just see how that turns out. <laughs> <laughs> This is the saddest looking Charlie Brown I've ever seen. And he's already pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. 
so yeah, so this was Brian Michael Bendis returning to to Daredevil, and I I don't know what the uh, David or, or, Mack it, also co-wrote it with him. Oh, okay, okay. So I don't know what the initial pitch of it was, um, but if I was to assume, I want to say it was kind of it was Brian Michael Bendis doing the last Daredevil story. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a story that sets up right at the beginning. Um, Daredevil has been murdered, and uh, before his death, before his uh, uh, identity was revealed to the to the world, and before his death, he says he says something. Um, he says Mapone, I think, or something like that, right? Yeah, Mapone. Yeah, and then uh, and throughout the rest of the series, it's a mystery surrounding. What is what is Mapone, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just it's it's been a while since I read it, but it it on it on on the face of it, it was something that really caught my attention because it had this really great creative team. It had uh, a pretty interesting hook, and I remember getting to the end of it and just feeling like when 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 they reveal that Mapone is just this person's name, this character that he created. It, I don't know. It, it was a mystery. Felt flat it, to you. It it fell flat to me exactly because I think I think I'm just trained or accustomed to expecting there to be some sort of clever twist to to that sort of uh, a revelation mm-hmm. or or you know uh, like usually often in stories like that whenever you know whenever you have that uh, that trope. Or not, not that device, that plot device where someone, someone's last words are being investigated. Um, you know, I guess the most famous version of that is like Citizen Kane or something like that, where he says Rosebud, and mm-hmm. as the view, viewer, you you figure out, oh, that's what Rosebud is, and it just, it just didn't feel like. I, I didn't feel like it was something that had been built into the story enough or there weren't enough breadcrumbs leading to the end of it where when you find out what Mapone actually is, you're like, oh, like it was staring me in the face all along and I didn't see it, you know, but it mm-hmm. really just felt like like he just introduced this thing towards the latter end of this of, of the story and it was like, oh, there you go, you know, so I still appreciate the work for its craft. But that that was something where the ending of it, yeah, it's, it's like you said, it left me feeling flat, flatter on it mm-hmm. than I would have wanted to be. Like this was something that I wanted to love when it was announced, and you know, it's still a beautiful book, but it was just not something that I can love. Yeah, yeah, you know? that understandable, understandable, and I. I I need to go back and reread that. I I think I felt kind of the same way you did when I read it the one time I read it, uh-huh, where uh-huh. I got to the end and I was like, oh, that's that's it. <laughs> that's who my yeah. phone is. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I was kind of a, I don't know. It just felt weird because I I usually don't. I think I usually try not to place too many expectations on whatever text I'm consuming. So whatever reason that time I. I guess I did expect Mapone to be, uh, you know, some kind of bigger revelation than what Mapone ended up turning out to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and it's 
it's hard for me to to denigrate the book, even though I don't really think I'm necessarily denigrating it. But it's just hard to to even say that I don't like it or that I don't, you know, because yeah, again, I still like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there are things about it that I definitely appreciate. I just and and there's so much about it that I wanted to love, you know, but I at the end I just can't say that I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- any- I think I would need to reread it in order to to really uh, give a proper reflection on it. Yeah, but yeah. that re- revelation of who Mapone was definitely, uh, I guess, it left me a bit underwhelmed at the time. But who knows, yeah. man? Maybe if I reread it this time, uh, the next time I reread it, uh, I'll have a different opinion. Yeah, for all we know, there could be something that we're missing. Uh, that we'll catch on our reread where mm. it'll definitely feel like it was more earned, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything like that? Uh, nothing that immediately comes to mind, which is kind of funny, I guess, considering I'm the one who came up with the question. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, I guess when, anytime I come up with these questions, I'm really just interested in learning what you think. And I don't even, yeah. I don't yeah. even bother considering it myself. <laughs> Well, I can't. Well, okay. To answer the second part of the question, right, as of right now, I can't really think of a good, of an example of a good ending elevating a bad story, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I, I really, I'm really uh, just racking my brain here, thinking of something, and, and I guess part of it is I'd have to ask myself what I consider bad, because. Yeah. Right, because I, I, I'd have to. Maybe I can think of something that was mediocre to begin with, where the ending was what elevated it. Right. Well, yeah, that that's fair too. That's fair too. You you have something yeah. that you think is mediocre that became better once you read the ending. Well, even I mean, I was just proposing the question, but even then, I, I don't really necessarily have anything. Uh, the first thing that I can think of. Um, if I, I had to really, well, no, I guess it doesn't even really count. Um, well, I'll just say it anyways. It's not a comic. It's, I was thinking of the show Adventure Time. Okay. Okay. But, but that's, it doesn't really count because I, I don't necessarily think the ending in it of itself was the thing that made the show so much better once you get towards it. I just think that over time, the, the gradual buildup of everything, uh, just, improved it over time you know and by the time you get to the ending it was just uh a substantially better product you know Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. uh i don't think the ending in and of itself was the thing that improved the entire series up to that point you know so yeah so i don't really have anything as a prime example for what you're asking for there like i'd really have to think on it some and yeah yeah really really uh, contemplate it further before I could answer that. Maybe by the time we get to the end of this podcast, I'll, I'll have something. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was just thinking there are some stories that are so predicated on having some kind of twist ending. There are a lot that... of stories that are predicated on the twist ending. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think when I think about those stories, sometimes just stepping back, looking at the story 
in terms of like the beginning and the middle part of the story like it's they're not really outstanding or anything but because of the way that the ending is structured to surprise or or uh maybe even shock you i guess that's what makes it a memorable story right yeah. and and uh maybe an example of that could be i guess another movie like the sixth sense or something yeah that's what i was thinking of too <laughs> yeah yeah because that that's a movie that's pretty famous for having a twist ending yeah but i'm also thinking if if you already knew the twist going in yeah is the if movie you remove the element of the twist <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like if you already knew that was happening would you still be able to enjoy or appreciate the story on its own merits? Cause I kind of feel like stories that r- rely on these sort of twist endings, it's hard to do them well because if, if they rely on the twist, it feels like a crutch, you know, because you're just yeah. trying to surprise the reader and, and that surprise kind of goes away after the first time they've experienced the story. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's, a, unless it's some kind of twist where, where, having experienced the twist, it immediately makes the reader or the audience want to go right back from the and start again from the beginning to pick up on the yeah. foreshadowing and, you know, any other details that are now recontextualized with the new knowledge that they have. It's right, it's right. hard to do that. I feel like there are a lot of short stories in comics. You know, when you, whenever you pick up an anthology with with a bunch of eight pagers or or 12 page stories, it's not a whole lot of room to tell a lot of in-depth stories, but I feel like a lot of the anthologies that I have read over the years um, from various publishers, I'm counting like, you know, Marvel, DC, uh, a lot of Vertigo stuff in particular, because when, cause when Vertigo was in its prime, they used to do a lot of different anthologies. Even like in their later years, they were doing some anthologies uh, to give people like younger creators chances to flex their skills. And I feel like a lot of those stories tended to rely on some kind of like shock or twist. Mm. Maybe it goes all the way back to older comics too. Like I think of some old EC comics from the 50s. You know, we've read our fair share of those from the different Fantagraphics uh, reprint collections of those. And a lot of those stories do rely on on some kind of twist ending. And sometimes the twist is pretty amazing. Sometimes it's not too amazing and, you know, uh, it, it just feels like there are ways to do a twist ending that enhance the overall story Yeah. and give the reader a chance to, to recontextualize everything that they've read so that the next time they read it, they can get even more out of the story. But then there are also like the twist endings that once you read it once, there's like no reason to read the story again from the beginning, you know, because that's that's yeah. all it was. It was kind of cheap. Well, it makes me want to ask then, do you think there's a type of person who, in spite of knowing the ending, uh, experiencing that ending for the first time, they're able to sustain their love for that every time just just because they enjoy reliving that experience? Is that a possible thing for people? Well... Last week, you told me that anything is possible. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, yeah, I think so, okay. man. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> I learned from you, man. <laughs> I was going to what you said. <laughs> I was also going to remark on um, what you were talking about in those EC comics. And um, we went through a period uh, where individually, I think we read a bunch of those EC comics. And uh, I'd say that most, if not all of those, were predicated on some sort of twist ending. And there, there are definitely a lot of really good stories within, though within that like library, yeah. Oh, within that oh. library, yeah, within that library of uh, stories. But I, I, I even had, I will admit that after having read enough of those, there you do begin to notice that it gets repetitive and it even begins to feel like they were just recycling some of those endings and just putting different flourishes on them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it's, it's still something that I generally appreciated, but uh, it, it's hard not to notice it when all you become known for is the twist ending. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't rely on it as a crutch. Mm. Yeah. Another, uh, example of a, a twist ending being an abject failure it just came to mind for some reason but i was thinking of batman the long halloween oh that's a pretty i think prime example of someone abusing the twist ending yeah yeah, yeah. and batman the long halloween is one of those comics that i think gets a lot of love from most people i personally don't have love for it i love the art i don't love yeah. it as a comic yeah the and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about mysteries, mystery stories, yeah. and how when, when you read a mystery story, the ending is probably more a little bit more important than in a lot of other types of genres because, well, there's a certain level of trust that the writer of a mystery story uh, is supposed to have with the reader, right? Like you don't go into reading a mystery story expecting uh, some kind of like cop-out ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not saying like every mystery has to have like a super satisfying, uh, you know, like Sherlock Holmes kind of explanation where, you know, this is the reason why this guy is the perpetrator and it could only have been him because, you know, this clue from page two was like right in front of your eyes or whatever. And maybe there are some mystery stories that that are meant to be left ambiguous, but you know that's purposeful. I'm I'm talking primarily about mystery stories that that try to actually sell the reader an actual mystery in a way that uh, you're supposed to be able to solve if you read carefully enough. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think a book like The Long Halloween fails as a story because it plays itself off as a mystery story that tries to present a mystery to the reader in a fair way, meaning that if you as the reader pay attention to all the clues, you can actually figure out the crime and solve it alongside the protagonist, Batman. Yeah. And that that's how it tries to play itself off. But that's just not true. Like it doesn't work it in execution, Jeff Loeb totally dropped the ball on that one. Like there's yeah. It doesn't play fair with the reader. It, it's uh, and it uses a cheap twist ending at the very end to pretty much invalidate everything that he had built up to anyway. 
Well, it's like a double twist, right? Because yeah. he does the twist, and then he does another twist to to just make it feel like, isn't this so smart? Didn't I trick all of you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, but it, it really falls apart when you scrutinize the ending. It feels lame. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. I felt like he needed to read more Raymond Chandler or something, because Raymond Chandler, uh, shoot, I forget what it was called, but he, I think he wrote a series of essays about how to how to build a mystery, and Jeff Loeb breaks a lot of those rules in in the Long Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since I've read it too, but I do think that once you get to the end of it, you're you're just left there going. Wait. So, did any of the 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 clues that you left did any of those have anything to do with how we got to where we are? <laughs> Cuz Yeah. Otherwise, I just feel like I just wasted my time, you know. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Do you think that the journey is just as important as the destination? Uh I think so. How important think... is the ending to you in a story? I don't, okay, so I think the ending is important to me. I don't think it's the end-all, beat-all of like everything that I need to get from a story. Um, in terms of uh, what I'm hoping to get from any any literature that I consume, it, it's like I was saying earlier, right? Like there, there's I think there's enough space in my life for all kinds of uh all all these different kinds of stories right so there's definitely a place in my life where when i get to when i'm following the plot of something and it gets to the end uh i i derive a sense of gratification from it right Mm -hmm. um but there's definitely also a place for me where uh the ending doesn't necessarily always need to make sense and by the time i get to it the journey that I've been on, the experiences that I've experienced, uh, more than make up for 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 that ending, right? So, yeah. I think overall, if I had to balance those two things against one another, I'd probably say I'd place more weight on uh, everything that leads up to the ending, right? So, the journey essentially uh, is what's more important to me than mm-hmm. what the actual ending is but i i'd have to introduce the caveat that well i i'm not gonna be i'm not gonna completely turn a blind eye to a bad ending though because it, again it's it's a question of degrees because if the ending is bad enough then it it will affect my overall experience in spite of the journey mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but but yeah, I, but overall, like I, I, there's a lot of things that I can forgive. Um, e- even something where, and this is something that I think uh, a lot of people would describe as a bad ending, but endings that are left open or ambiguous, right? Like, yeah, I don't think that's a bad ending. Uh, personally, I don't think that's a bad ending. If anything. I really do appreciate those kind of kinds of endings. I don't always need to have this sense of closure, you know? 
Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so again, like an ending would have to be pretty bad. Like it would have, it would have to be the type of ending that completely contradicts everything that came before it in order for it was it to all be, a dream. Yeah. It was Agatha all along. <laughs> Agatha! Agatha! Where did that come from? <laughs> Agatha! But it was... <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it it would have to be something that completely contradicts all of the thematic buildup or maybe even all of the the plot buildup that came before it in order for it to truly be a bad ending. The the only exception that I could make is if they purposefully did that, if, if you, if someone did that purposefully as a tongue in cheek way of doing a story and it's obvious that it was a, uh, a conscientious decision on their part as the writer, then Mm -hmm. I can, there's something that can be appreciated about that, right? Yeah. Like, you can tell the difference between someone who got to the end of the story and didn't know what to do with it relative mm-hmm. uh, compared to someone who got to the end and just decided, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to mess with these people. And that's part of the joke of the story or part of the, 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 I guess the play of it all, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. That's 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 probably probably how I would. That's my uh, long answer for that. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think I agree with you. If I were to choose on my own, I'd probably lean more towards saying that the journey might even be more important than the destination. Like I, I definitely feel more inclined to favor a story that. You know, f- for ninety-five percent of it, you know, I'm I'm totally with it, and then you know, perhaps that last five percent stumbles a bit. Like that, that wouldn't really bother me as much. You know, like I'd rather have that than a story that doesn't really feel all that enjoyable, but has an amazing twist ending or something. You know, because like I I don't think, for the most part, I I think if I'm already into a story. And I'm I'm liking a run. I'm already inclined to enjoy or appreciate whatever the creator comes up with for the ending. You know, like it, it's almost immaterial, to, um, like what exactly the ending is gonna be, because I've already got trust and respect for for the creative team. So, in a way, I would say that the the ending doesn't really matter as much. I guess what really matters is that there is an ending. Like it it would be hard to keep on reading something knowing that there isn't any kind of closure whatsoever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So for me, I'd yeah, I'd probably say that I don't care as much about endings, generally speaking. I mean, of course I I care a little bit mostly in the sense that I want my stories to have endings because I think a lot of end a lot of times most times if not every time endings give their meaning give stories their meaning so to to have a a lack of an, a proper ending that that usually is very detrimental <laughs> like I, yeah. I just think 
you know, and you see that in comics a ton because because of various circumstances where sometimes a, a writer ends up, uh, you know, losing interest in a book and they just step away and they don't even write a proper ending, you know? Like, I'm thinking specifically of JMS, J. Michael Straczynski, because he's, like, infamous for that. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's constantly, he constantly had stories where, you know, he, he wrote them for significant amounts of time and then they just petered out because he... I don't know if he just lost interest or if something came up in his life, but he ended up not really giving them proper endings. So yeah, in that sense, it's almost like, man, why would I even want to begin this journey if there is no destination whatsoever, you know? Yeah. But uh, other times, though, I, I'm probably more inclined to care about the overall story because I... I don't want to treat my stories like plot delivery devices because I think a lot of people consume stories where they just want to see this happens, that happens, and then this other thing happens, and then finally this is how it ends. You know, yeah. like you want to, they want to get from plot point A to plot point B to plot point C to plot point D or the ending or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's like they just want to know what happens next. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, which is fine, I guess, but it, that's not the only way to read a story either, you know. Like there are things that happen on the in between plot point A and plot point B that are worth reading as well. So yeah, yeah I don't want to reduce stories just to to plot points and and endings. That that's not really how I enjoy any kind of story, whether it's yeah. uh, you know any kind of medium. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just. I don't know. I, I guess it's it's that idea of like learning. How do you learn or teach someone to appreciate like art in the sense that it's not just the idea of looking at the final product of what this thing is, but appreciating like all of the meta text that happens behind it, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the more controversial endings in comics? Or maybe some of the endings that a lot of people seem not to like? Um, when I think about it, one of the uh, first examples that I can think of... Well, we, we developed a list together, but um, one of the things that I was thinking was uh, Brian K. Vaughn for something like Why the Last Man or Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh I think those two kind of occupy the same space in that he uses the same story convention or or the same device to conclude his story which is this fast forward time jump to mm -hmm. get to the end of so he fast forwards so he tells his story up to a certain point and then he fast forwards a couple of years so that you can see where the characters are later on in their life and uh i i never personally understood why people hated that because uh like i i it, it's it's for me it's a way of seeing what happens to the characters how their lives unfold in the years mm -hmm. following whatever happens to them but for whatever reason, like people apparently have a problem with it. I don't know. What have you heard 
like your your pulse is certainly more on or your finger is definitely more on the pulse of what uh your average comic book fan hates and likes because i just tend not to pay attention to those things because quite frankly they're beneath me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I think with ex machina in particular that one i remember when the last issue came out a lot of people were expressing displeasure with it i feel like with why uh when it came out, I don't remember a lot of people, um, you know, saying too many uh, bad things about the end of Why the Last Man until Ex Machina's ending came out. Because then, it, because I guess because Ex Machina did some time jumping in its ending, they went back and they were like, hey, he did that in Why the Last Man also. And, and uh, you know, the, the, that was when I started to hear uh, grumblings about why ending but with ex machina i feel like that was the one where when it came out people were i don't really know why they were i don't really remember why they were so silly to me upset yeah it just seems like such such a silly thing not to like about the ending um like i i okay now that i think about it and now that we're discussing it uh it it does make me think of someone like M. Night Shyamalan, right? Uh, from The Sixth Sense again, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. And how after The Sixth Sense, his whole thing became known as he was the guy who would write twist endings. So it became this running joke with all the movies that he came out with that, oh, he's he's going to do a twist ending. What a twist, you know? Yeah. And that became the running gag about his the trajectory of his career or, or, you know, the, just the kind of movies that he made. And, and that might be the closest, that might be the closest thing that I could compare it to. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't really have anything other than that. Yeah. I don't really know either. Um, I guess they just kind of came to mind the time skipping these time skipping endings came to mind because in our last episode we were talking about invincible and that's what they did in in their finale as well just the little time skipping where you see different points in in the future to follow up on the characters and give you give you that closure yeah so i don't i don't know if that's something that people generally are annoyed by yeah but if if so uh, I don't really relate to it. I mean, I wonder if they are, if they feel robbed by not getting what they consider a proper ending, in 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 the sense that it's a definitive closure to all these things. See, I don't get that because these time skip endings, they're all definitive, also. So. Exactly, they're absolutely <laughs> definitive. Like you know, to them, like. We talked about this for Invincible a little bit in that for a lot of comic book stories, the ending comes after the battle. Like the battle ends, the heroes save the day, and that's it. That's the end, right? So there's Mm -hmm. this sense that the good guys won and we all, and it just ends with, you know, them staring into the sunset or riding off into the sunset. And it's like the good guys won. There it is. There's your ending, right? But you know, life goes on after that. You don't really get uh, if if we're really gonna put it in those terms, 
it'd be like saying, well, you know, in real life, there's the battle and the war, and then there's the day after the war, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the writer. These these endings are the writers essentially showing you, well, this is how their lives unraveled in the years following whatever they did. And just, you, you could say that whatever experiences that they had led them to whatever points in life they ultimately follow towards its uh, natural conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's this idea that, well, the good guys won that one battle, but five years from now, someone might have post-traumatic stress. Or years after that, uh, your some of your characters might succumb to to darker thoughts or the forces of um for the better lack of a term evil or whatever you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you take a step back and look at that work as a whole it it probably makes more sense right because you can look at everything that's happened up to that point and even though the ending of something like Invincible ends with this, uh, with this sense that, oh, the good guys won and they'll be good forever, mm-hmm. like it just leaves. There's something lacking in the in the in the feeling that, well, you know, these people change over time and those experiences change with them, you know, or those experiences yeah. are what change them. On some level, it makes more sense. Yeah, um, that's true. Like one of the things that I was thinking of, and this is a pretty, um, I think it's a pretty famous example of people hating an ending, uh, is something like Game of Thrones, the show. Like Mm, mm -hmm. that thing got so much hate, right? And and it's, well, I'll, I'll tell you right now. So this is kind of a spoiler. It's not an ending that, uh, fast forwards in the sense that oh these you know you get to see these characters years down the line or whatever right, right. Um, if anything I'd say that that's an ending where people felt like once you got to the end of the series one they felt like it was rushed two they felt like people were behaving out of character from everything that had been established before it but i I think it's if you stop and like rewatch the series from the beginning to the end with with the mind with keeping the ending in mind, it actually makes you reconsider everything that you've been watching before. Hmm. You know? Because mm-hmm. there are scenes where um again, where it's this idea that oh, people are acting out of character once they get to the end. And um but if you keep in mind that this person ends up becoming this monster and you go back to the beginning and rewatch the decision-making process and uh, the actions and behaviors that that person uh, took in the lead up to that moment, it, it definitely gives it a darker tone, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so again, it's, I, I think it connects to this particular subject in that it's it's this ongoing like just almost fluid entity 
where you'd have to take a look at it in the context of everything that's been established, right? And yeah. all that that and all that fast forward of an ending does is it, it gives you more more context towards the end. But again, if you go back towards the beginning and re reread it, like you can connect those dots with the ending in mind and you'd see that, oh, maybe this person wasn't nearly as heroic as we thought he was, you know? Yeah. Like maybe the signs that this person was had something in him that wasn't so great were always there. We just didn't notice it because we were so busy cheering them on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's you know? true. Yeah, I definitely see that in in Ex Machina because that's one where if you actually go back and read the reread the first issue of Ex Machina, the way it begins, the beginning of of the series is also the last scene of the series also. So there's there's definitely a connection there that's yeah. pretty deliberate. So it, yeah. it doesn't really feel because Ex Machina begins with an older Mitchell Hundred narrating some events to to the audience and uh, in the first issue. And then when you get to the last issue, uh, it's basically a continuation of the scene from the very first issue. Right, right. So just to give a little bit of context, um, like the brief description of Ex Machina is just this idea where what if there was a world in which there was only one superhero and that one superhero decided to become a politician as opposed to continuing to use his powers as a superhero, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And and like you said, the story starts out and the very first page of it, it it's, it's a pretty dark tone and it leaves you wondering where the story is going to go, you know? And mm-hmm. by the time you get to that last issue, it's it's uh it's some sobering stuff, you know. Very sobering stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I don't know how much you want to give away, but I'll yeah, I'll I'll just put it at that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally enough. We don't need to get super specific with it. Yeah. Any um, other controversial endings in comics that you want to bring up? Well, I did want to talk about the ending to Why the Last Man a little bit sure. too, just just because um, I do want to say that that is something that went in a different direction than Ex Machina, in that uh, I don't think it was a dark ending, but I do think that. So I I just reread it for the podcast, and I do Same think here. it's I think it's a pretty poetic ending. You know, it's it's just something that says a lot about life going on, you know, like just, yeah, I, I do think it's it embodies that idea of just how even after the events of everything that happens, life goes on, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a really satisfying conclusion in terms of how it gives that emotional closure, but it also gives you closure for uh, for the events as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's like what you were saying earlier. This when we started our conversation, how you know the story's 
a story's ending should give some emotional closure. And I think um, in issue 60, the last issue of Why the Last Man, there's there's a, a lot that happened in the issue that led up to this final issue. Mm-hmm. And then when you open this issue, there is a significant time skip. You, you learn that you, you basically see the world 60 years from the end of you know issue 59 and you see what happens to not only to yorick but, but the people also, in his life yeah all the people in his life and the people in the world basically like how does yeah how is society continuing to function and it, it's it's fascinating stuff just in terms of like the the world building but it's also satisfying in terms of seeing what happens to what happens to Yorick himself as a as a character? It's yeah, pretty moving. And like the the ending, like the the last couple pages are just it's it's just beautiful poetry, man. Like that's the exactly. kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. like that's the kind of thing. Just like looking I at love Pugh that very last art, page. Yeah, that page is just it's just it's moving beautiful. and liberating. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, there, there are a couple of other famously, uh, uh, denigrated endings in comics. I I think one of the ones that we tend to hear about, or we heard a lot about at the time was something like House of M. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was a big event series where it's, it's one of the stories that, may or may not have been the well in all likelihood it was the uh the one of the source materials for wandavision and mm-hmm. so you know if you want a just general idea of what it was about uh, it's something similar to that but yeah and basically wanda uses her powers and rewrites the universe and uh in her image you know uh and what ends up happening at the end is well, uh, I'll just spoil it because it's it's a pretty famous ending at this point. But uh, in the end, she breaks down completely and she uses her powers and basically wishes all the mutants or most of the mutants out of existence by saying no more mutants, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And And this was another thing where, like, I personally didn't understand why people hated it, but... I don't know. Like I even after uh That's because you know, you're not in touch with the common man, Albert. Uh you sit so I, far above everybody on your exactly. mountaintop looking down at all these plebeians that you're you have no idea what they like. Exactly. I and <laughs> I don't even think that I'm on a mountain. I'm like Modoc. I'm in a hover chair just floating <laughs> above them and my fecal matter and urine just trickles down on all of them. That is how little I think of your average person. <laughs> but yeah, even even after reading why people didn't like that ending, I it still was lost on me. I just didn't under, understand it. You know, like maybe the 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 only thing that I could say for it was people thought it was stupid. Like maybe that's the short answer. But maybe. But then like I, a lot I don't of know. superhero comics are stupid. Yeah, like it's they're not they're not all meant to be uh contemplative high art or anything, you know, they're just 
sometimes some things are just fun action stories and uh, like you know like house i don't of m, house of m wasn't any it wasn't stupider than a lot of other superhero comics around the time either you know yeah yeah i mean that's you know it sounds like a backhanded compliment but that's that's basically it right like how is this how is this one story any stupider than you know anything else really right exactly Uh, but i don't know again uh I'm, i'm just detached yeah another ending that i think was pretty controversial at the time was the ending to wanted the comic by mark miller and jg jones uh-huh. But that was a superhero comic that was about this uh, average, everyday, cubicle-working loser who uh, learns that his father is one of the greatest supervillains ever. And apparently in their world, uh, the supervillains long ago killed all the superheroes, and they maintain this secret society to essentially have free reign over the world. You know, they can commit any crime they want and not face any consequences. And... When the story begins, this main character, his name's Wesley, he is essentially recruited to be the successor to his father who who dies uh, at the beginning of the of the comic. So he gets trained to be this crazy superpowered assassin with you know heightened reflexes and impeccable aim, and just goes around committing crimes and and taking revenge on all the people that have ever slighted him. It's a pretty dark and sadistic comic. I think a lot of I think that already on its own, uh, you know, turned a lot of people off to it. But the the last page of the comic like seriously pissed a lot of people off too. So like the yeah. way that the way that Wanted ends is that uh, Wesley has a choice to either go back to living his average everyday life uh, as a as an office drone, or he can continue to be this powered killer and be a supervillain and you know do whatever he wants like steal whatever he wants kill whoever he wants have sex with whoever he wants and face no consequences whatsoever and the very last page of the comic ends with wesley it's like a big close-up of his of his face and uh he, he basically calls he's narrating the story and he tells his audience that that they're pathetic you know like you're such a loser that um, you're you're still living your normal life. The only reprieve you get is just to you know buy this comic and read it. <laughs> and yeah. then uh, the the last page is a close up of his face, and he's clearly you know like hollering. And he's and he says the the narration says, "This is my face while I'm effing you in the ass." <laughs> and that's just oh. how it ends. And I felt that's, like when that when that's that an happened, interesting interpretation. <laughs> huh? No, no, that's that's what it literally says though. No, I know that's what it literally says, but I was like, yeah. you, I, I never looked at his face and thought he was hollering. I thought that was him in the throes of, you know, orgasmic satisfaction as he thrusted himself into the figurative, uh, you know, stand-in for, yeah, the people that he was yelling at. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I guess I just interpreted him as like hollering, but he, he clearly has his mouth open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that a lot of when that happened, a, a lot of people straight up took that personally, you know, <laughs> like they 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 yeah. seriously thought this is Mark Miller disrespecting his audience. Like he's he thinks 
he's calling us pathetic for buying his comic and supporting his work. Yeah, that's pretty silly. <laughs> I thought it was pretty silly. It's it's it's. I mean, us being where we are in in the comic cultures in this current point in time, like with the outrage machine being what it is, it just feels like. I don't know. It's it's an ending that's. I think if you take it the way that me and you do, it's like okay, that's an ending he chose, and I'm fine with that. That's you know, mm-hmm. I, I I certainly didn't take it personally, you know, but the way that the the fandom has played out into its separate camps, it's just it just feels like it's more. Uh, I guess not not relevant, but it's the sort of thing that's amplified now more than ever. You know, mm-hmm. like if it came out today, like when there was t- when yeah, like there's Twitter today. There wasn't Twitter back then. Yeah, if it came out today, like Edge Lords would be all over this, and uh, uh, you know, just delicate fans or whatever, like would be clutching their pearls even harder. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's 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 a weird, it's weird to see how something like that plays out now in 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 uh or it's interesting to think about about how that would play out now in uh, in the current environment. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Yeah. But yeah, like, did you like what did you think of that at at the time? Did, like, any other thoughts other than just. How silly! Honestly, it is. I just honestly I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. Like it was, it was so ridiculous, and and the whole series was over the top. It really was. You know, just full of violence and and. This guy is supposed to be a super villain. He's supposed to supposed to be detestable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Completely, a completely detestable protagonist doing horrible things. You know, yeah. like there's there's a scene in the earlier in the book where he boasts about raping and murdering a famous celebrity without any consequences because the supervillains run society. So, you know, there's absolutely no way to, to root for this guy or feel any kind of sympathy towards him. You're just reading the story to to be entertained and amused by what happens next because yeah. it's it's just so ridiculous. So yeah. I, I I didn't understand why people took it so personally, you know? It it was weird to me because he he is the villain. Of course he's gonna say something like that and and yeah. you know, like why why is it okay for for this guy to to do all these awful things to other characters in his in his world? But once he you know once he looks at the reader, once he addresses the reader directly, why yeah. is that offensive? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'd probably even go so far as to say that. Well, I mean, it's we're beating a dead horse at this point, but like, you're not supposed to like him. I think that's the thing that people need to keep in mind. So if if the whole thing was like I'm on board with this because it's cool or whatever, like I think you're missing the point. Like yeah. you're not supposed to like look at this character and idolize him. It's it's possible to write a story where the protagonist is just a sack of crap. <laughs> you exactly. Know? Exactly. He's a to- he's a total sack of crap. Yeah. Yeah. And people, I don't know, maybe maybe they need a disclaimer at the beginning of the books to tell people, hey, this person is awful. Just know that you're reading about an awful person. Like, don't 
don't feel that you're supposed to cheer for him or like revel in his victories as if they're your own victories. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> you know, history is full of just terrible, terrible people. And sometimes life imitates art. What do you want? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So you want to get into uh, some of the endings that we chose, Drew, for sure, man. Uh, for this? Yeah, yeah I guess we've, we've probably rambled on enough about en- endings as a general concept. We can start talking about some of the specific endings in, in the comics that we enjoy. Yeah. Uh, I can go ahead and start. And uh, the way I, I came about this exercise, or the way I approached this exercise, was to kind of create some of my own categories of different types of endings and and uh i'll start by sharing three three endings from the same writer so i want to talk about some joe casey comics joe casey's one of my favorite writers in comics he's uh written a bunch of comics for marvel and dc but he's also done a bunch of his own stuff too for for uh you know like his creator-owned work at image and he's also done a bunch of um a bunch of work for other companies like i remember he's done some gi joe comics he's done he's done some kiss comics <laughs> you know he's done he's done a whole gamut of stuff and he's probably most known now for being part of man of action which is the the production team that uh works in in a lot of television as well they they created this kids show called ben 10 i've never really watched it but that's that's their work and as far as i know like he's He's full time, like doing doing television stuff, you know, to make a living. And and nowadays he purely does comics just out of love, and and that's why he does like creator owned work as opposed to continuing to do Marvel and DC stuff. But uh, the first comic of his I wanted to talk about was uh, one of his earliest works for the big two, which was from the late 90s. He had a run on cable of all of all series he wrote cable for i don't know around 20 issues or so so the thing with his run on cable is that he had an amazing artist with him he had jose ladron drawing his comics and ladron is this mexican comic book creator who whose art i guess the only the easiest way for me to describe ladron's art uh in in his cable work is to call him this blend of like jack kirby influences along with mobius influences like you can definitely see bits of both in his style in in cable nowadays ladron's known for doing uh, a lot of covers and and uh, european comics the style looks a little different but the stuff he was doing in cable it's just amazing amazing stuff especially when you compare it to what other people were doing in the 90s it's it's an it's an incredible uh callback to that kirby style of drawing but with it's very stylized yeah with this european uh influence in terms of like the details and and his, his staging and layouts but the thing about their run on cable and this is the the category that i i, I put this in it, it he only ended uh joe casey only ended his run on cable with issue 70 because he chose to quit and the reason he chose to quit was because marvel kicked ladron off the book 
And the reason why Marvel kicked Ladron off the book was because they thought they could get Rob Liefeld to come back and do Cable, you know, his most famous creation, arguably uh, his most famous creation along with Deadpool. So if you if you get the comics, uh, if you look back to the comics, issue 71 is actually drawn by Rob Liefeld, but uh, he didn't last very long. Like, I, I don't know what happened there, but obviously being Rob Liefeld, he was only there for like no more than like two or three issues and then and then he left. So it, it, it totally felt like a waste. But the reason why uh, I remember reading uh, interviews with Joe Casey and I've listened to podcasts and interviews with Joe Casey and he, he talked about what happened here. It's basically he basically just decided to quit cable because they were firing Ladron. And if he wasn't going to be able to work with his collaborator, he didn't see a point in continuing and and that's, that's one of the things thing to do. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that makes this uh, issue so so interesting to me. Because I think they they did offer him a chance to continue on as the writer of Cable, but you know he'd be working with Rob Liefeld, and I don't. It's not like he has anything against Rob Liefeld. They've they've actually done work together in the years since, but it, it was again just you know a, a mark of artistic solidarity with his collaborator to to quit when. His when Ladron was no longer going to be on the book, but I, I really like this comic because it it works as a one-off comic about Cable. Like if you didn't know anything about Cable to begin with, like this is a comic that will actually make you care. Because let's face it, man, Cable is a hard character to care about. He's he's a Rob <laughs> Liefeld character. <laughs> he's just a, a big grizzled angry guy with a metal arm and a couple of giant guns and. Yeah, you know, that that's all he was. He was just like this one-note, extreme kind of superhero for the '90s. Really silly concept. But during the course of Ladron and Casey's run, they transformed him into this, uh, you know, like a real adventurer type with with uh, genuine emotions and and depth. They took him on a tour through the Marvel universe, basically. And in the final issue here, he he after an adventure where he was away he finally returns to to new york and uh there's a one of the supporting characters throughout their run is this waitress at a diner and her name is stacy she has a younger a much younger little brother that she takes care of and i think he's even like a special needs kid so like she works extra hard to to care for him but she and cable because cable goes to that diner they they kind of have like this budding romance going on between them and this is the first time cable's been back since he was away on his uh superhero adventures and he, he gets a chance to uh see her again and he goes into her apartment and and turns out that her brother uh is missing so they they hear from one of the neighbors that her brother her little brother went downstairs to the basement and I guess it's this sounds funny, but he meets this like basically this deluded old uh, old man. <laughs> like he might be homeless, but he's he's a deluded <laughs> old man who's building what he calls a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> and when you look at it, the way the way that it's drawn, it's just like this pile of junk that uh, looks <laughs> looks like a rocket. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, so he meets this old cans. guy. <laughs> yeah. So like. 
he seems harmless enough. You know, Cable talks to him and the guy tells him this whole story about how he came from the future and got separated from his wife. And, you know, for the past 20 or 30 years, he's been building this time machine so he could go back to the future and, and be with his wife. And it, it's 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 a pretty silly story. And it's an old man's delusions. But um, I think it's it's still fitting for a Cable story because it, you know, Cable's a, a time traveling type of character. Then you get a, a scene where Cable and Stacy have like this heart to heart. And he basically tells her that he can't really be with her because he doesn't live a normal life. He has mutant powers and it, it's not uh, it's not safe to be around him and, and all that. And, you know, they, they kind of have like a sad farewell or they, they kind of part on this down downbeat note. And then later on, uh, like just as he's leaving, he he hears he hears something in her room, and uh, it turns out that one of his enemies uh, from a previous storyline has come back for revenge, and the guy's gonna you know kill his his loved ones basically. So he the guy tries to uh, attack Stacy, and, and then he and Cable have this big battle through the apartment, and you know, long story short, they, they crash through a bunch of things. And then this, uh, this enemy of cables ends up tumbling down into the basement where the deluded old man has built this like rocket ship looking thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he, uh, he turns it on just out of like curiosity. <laughs> of course it explodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So it explodes. And then, you know, fortunately, um, all of the, most of the residents are able to evacuate the building, but there, there's a, the last couple pages are are pretty awesome, where you have Stacy along with the other residents. They're they're standing outside. It, you know, it's a it's at night. It's raining, but they're looking at their apartment complex, which just had an explosion rock the basement. So there's a lot of fire and and rubble everywhere too. And then as the first responders are coming uh, to put the fire out. You have Cable walking out of the fire using his his telekinesis to save uh, Stacy's little brother and the and the deluded old man. And once he uh, brings them out back to safety, he has a a conversation one one final conversation with with Stacy. And what what she what 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 they end up talking about goes back to the previous conversation because. The reason why Cable told her that he could never be with her was because he was afraid of what would happen if they were together in the future, you know, because it wouldn't be he didn't leave he didn't lead us he doesn't lead a safe life and there would be danger in store. But she basically tells him that he can't use his war as an excuse. He doesn't want her she doesn't she doesn't want him to hide behind a nightmare future that happens, you know, two millennia from now. And she asks him, you know what the real future is? And he says, the unknown. And she replies, that's right. And I don't, I don't think you have any problem accepting that despite what you say. You can't fool me. You never could. We're all scared, you know, scared of what might be and of what might not. Sometimes what matters most is the thing that's right in front of you. No one knows for sure how things are going to turn out for good or bad, but we persevere. We go on faith. 
and then they just look at each other and then the the last page of the book is a splash page and it's just them in each other's arms kissing each other for the first time and it just says the end it's like a really perfect ending for a run that like if if they had never made any more cable stories after this like that would have been a totally perfect ending you know but just knowing that this was how Casey and Ladron wanted to go out it's a pretty it's a pretty powerful high note like i i appreciate the like the commentary about facing the future and and the unknown yeah and just the emotional beat the emotional closure that that they give you uh with with the final page like it I'll I'll try to put a picture of this up on the Instagram so so people can see but it it's it's good stuff man like Ladron can really draw it's just I don't know man like his inks and his line work it it just feels like a great mix of of like over the top melodrama in that Kirby fashion but there's yeah. also like real real emotion too you know like it's not just it's like slightly melodramatic but there's also like sincerity to it you know yeah from what i remember it kind of reminds me of like like those old romance comics you know mm-hmm. but at the same time he still has the his style still includes all of these uh not eccentricities but just these like all these little minor details um that you didn't quite see with someone like kirby in the sense uh that from what I remember, like Kirby was a, like cleaner on some level, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't mean like, I don't mean that uh, Ladron's work was dirty or bad, but it just it was his take on that Kirby style, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And and what makes this in this ending interesting to me in terms of uh, context is this is the kind of ending you get when when the creative team gets a chance to kind of like put their final mark on on their run you know like yeah. obviously it's it's not the end for cable because in the next issue he's like fighting strife or some some crap like that <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like true rob liefeld fashion <laughs> and, uh, and he had a sure... good life until strife showed up <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and i'm pretty sure that they never referenced stacy ever again i mean i could yeah. be wrong i i i didn't re- read all that other stuff but yeah. um that's kind of a shame if like they just didn't uh address that at all because they just thought it was such a niche minor story detail to the point where <laughs> at the end of Joe Casey's run the implication is that and he lived happily ever after with her and in the next issue he never saw her again. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. That is pretty much what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I I that's picked this I picked this comic because it's a good example of how to do an ending when you have a chance to like prepare your your final issue, you know, because so many times in comics it you like a lot of comics aren't guaranteed. They don't get the the creative team isn't guaranteed a chance to do the ending that they want to do, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes sometimes they get canceled or sometimes they just uh you know get kicked off the book for whatever reason but uh in this in this case even though it wasn't like like joe casey necessarily got kicked off he 
he was aware that this was going to be his final issue. LeBron was aware that it was their final issue. So, you know, just to have a chance to do wrap to wrap things up in one issue is a really great feat, and to do it uh, with emotional closure, that's that's memorable stuff, man. Can I ask something? Um, yeah. Did we? Did they ever use Ladron for anything since? Like, I, I, I don't follow him too closely, so I'm I'm not really sure where his career went after that. Uh, like, I don't feel like I see his name on a lot of things, you know. Yeah, he's. I mean, in recent years, he's done a lot of uh, European comics, from what mm-hmm. I can remember. Like, the last thing of his I read, I don't know, a couple years ago few years ago he did some stuff uh i think it was i don't remember if it was who the writer was but it was some el topo stuff uh i think it was with jodorowsky actually i'm pretty sure yeah but uh if you're wondering if he did more marvel stuff after this i don't think he did too many interiors but he did do a bunch of covers like he's done a bunch of covers for marvel and for dc Uh like if you remember planet hulk he did those covers for oh yeah 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 yeah. Run. yeah okay and yeah. like that he's the style he was using in that doesn't look anything like what he was doing in cable yeah from what i remember it felt more painted almost right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah well yeah it's it's you know what i'm i'm just glad to hear he's working his his art is pretty unique and uh you know, it's Marvel and DC's loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And then next up, uh, going with the Joe Casey theme. So I want to talk about another book that he did where he was actually canceled. And he yeah. was canceled without a chance to to really do anything about it. I think technically he was aware that he was getting canceled, but uh, and he, maybe he could have, you know, rewritten a couple scenes in the in his last issue but i've listened to some of his interviews and he said that he didn't do any of that like he knew that he got canceled and and just left the last page the way it was but mm-hmm. uh he wrote wildcats version 3.0 and that got canceled with issue 24 and i read that he had actually planned it out all the way to 48 issue 48 like he had wow yeah that's huge yeah yeah like he had he knew what he wanted to do, but uh, just didn't get a chance to, to execute it to its conclusion. But with mm-hmm. issue 24, uh, well, here's a little context for Wildcats version 3.0. So Wildcats was the image book that Jim Lee created when Image was born in the early 90s. And it was essentially just this cheap X-Men knockoff, yeah. you know? Um, I liked it when I was a kid. You know, I was like 10 years old or whatever. So, yeah. Right. It was a big deal at the time. I mean, they even got their own cartoon, Saturday morning cartoon for a little while. Um, Yeah. You know, it was fairly popular. Yeah, yeah. And to Jim Lee's credit, even in those 90s, in the 90s time period, he he actually ended up getting some pretty good writers to to work on on his book, uh, even though he wasn't drawing it anymore. He got James Robinson to do a story arc that was pretty underrated. And then, shoot, Alan Moore came on for like yeah. at least an entire year and wrote yeah. Wildcats. That's pretty. That's a pretty impressive get. That's a huge you know? get. 
huge yeah. get. This is the yeah. guy that he's he's just a friggin' like comics like legend at the you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even at that point, he was probably still regarded as the greatest writer of uh, of the medium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, right around like the either the late '90s or early 2000s, uh, they they ended that image volume of Wildcats and relaunched it with uh, Wildcats Volume Two. And shortly, like a few issues into that volume, Joe Casey became the main writer, and he would right uh up until i think issue 26 which was a pretty that in and of itself that that's a a great standalone uh story like joe casey's run on wildcats volume two so he he ended that series and then he launched wildcats version 3.0 shortly afterward which took some of the lingering plot threads from volume two and some of the other characters that uh, you know, whose stories he hadn't concluded. And he, he uh, started telling this new story about a corporation that was able to, you know, it's a superhero comic. They live in a superhero world. So this corporation, the Halo Corp, was able to tap into this extra dimensional source for energy. And they would they created these batteries that had limitless power and it was going to be a, the whole story was going to be about how would would they use this power this limitless power uh to to change, change and, and benefit the world yeah exactly yeah. so it, it was at the time it was really critically acclaimed but it always had low sales mm. um i think it holds up really well like most people most people who are reading it have you know they hold it in high regard it, it's like one of the gems of early 2000s superhero comics that is looked at as as one of like the most interesting, artistic, experimental stories in the genre, you know? Yeah. I and, feel like uh, even in the modern era when they rebooted Wildcats and in fact the entire Wildstorm universe, there were still elements and ideas from that run that they were integrating into this rebooted version of the new universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it's uh just outstanding stuff, and and even though it got canceled halfway through his story, um, I I still think it's worth reading, man. And yeah. I want to I want to specifically talk about the last issue uh, uh, that he was able to do, which was issue twenty four, and that that's the it's a it's the conclusion of a storyline that is strangely enough. Uh, kind of a throwback to the old Wildcats because it it's an action story. Like a lot of the other stories have some action, but they're more about uh, character drama and and world building and and philosophizing. But this final story that he did was more. I don't think it was intentionally meant to be a commercial story, but it was definitely like the slam slam bam action story that would uh, you know be be more uh, in line with what you would traditionally expect from a superhero comic, which is a lot of fighting, shooting, jumping around, explosions, and things of that nature. But the the way it ends, it's it's just uh, after the battle is over, um, it's it's one of the main characters, the guy who's leading the the Halo Corporation, whose name is his name is Jack Marlowe. 
and he's just having a conversation with with one of the other cast members and the other guy you know they they have this conversation where one of the the other guy says uh they're talking about the battle that happened and how it affects uh their their other friend their ally and then the the dude tells jack he says a lot of people live for that nonsense it'll be tough to convince them otherwise and that nonsense uh meaning like superheroic violence <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's a commentary on on that and then the dude says, I don't know. I suppose it all seems a bit anticlimactic at the end. And Jack Marlowe says, on the contrary, we live in a world where new ideas, new approaches are regarded with suspicion and even derision. Mm. And yet every day is climactic. With each new day, there is born new hope. And I'm counting on that hope. Now that Grifter has hopefully made his peace with the past, we can all move forward to the future. Every new accomplishment ultimately becomes prologue to the next. I'm feeling more optimistic than I ever have, not only over what we've done, but what we've yet to do. In fact, this is only the beginning. So, like, there's this this uh, twisted irony, knowing that this was the last issue of the series. You know, like he's talking about the character is talking about how there's so much to look forward to, and this is only the beginning, but. You know, unfortunately, as the reader, this is all all we're ever going to get. Mm. And the thing that's just fascinating to me is that that's originally how Joe Casey had written that issue. Like, he knew that he got canceled and he had time to, to rewrite it if he had wanted to. But he decided he was just going to keep it the way it was and just, you know, leave it at that. Yeah. There's a... The, the meta... Just the things that are happening in the background to that just add to the i guess the poetry to it all you know yeah exactly it's an example where like the real world uh circumstances surrounding it and uh surrounding the story just add so much more to the meaning of it once you get Mm -hmm. to the end of it yeah 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 that's the fascinating thing it is it is and one more joe casey comic ending that I want to bring up is the ending to one of his creator-owned series, Butcher Baker, which was an image series he did with Mike Huddleston on art. And that one was an eight-issue miniseries. But what makes that in what makes that ending interesting is that at the time, it wasn't marketed as a miniseries. So, if you were reading the comic and buying it as it came out in single issues. When the eighth issue came out and you got to the end of the issue, only then did you see the end and you're like, oh, okay, I guess this was the last issue. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's it's not really too important right now to like get into the context of what Butcher Baker is all about. It's 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 a great comic and I, I recommend it. It's if you like stuff if you like more experimental comics like automatic kafka this is pretty much in that same vein uh but i think the surprise ending there's something to be said for that you know like even though there was a big gap between issues seven and eight uh, i think the artist had some delays but but even still you know like the the idea that they didn't tell anybody this was the last issue but just surprised people (laughs) like 
And there's something <laughs> cool about that, you know? Like you don't you don't expect it to end and and it just hits you with an ending. It it kind of it was basically like The Walking Dead before The Walking Dead did it, you know? Like, like I can't right, think right. of any other books besides those two where they surprised you with with the ending cuz nowadays everything is solicited so far in advance. Like there's just it's so hard to to do a surprise like that. Yeah, people want to cash in on that ending because uh, they know that this is their chance to cash in. They're, you only get that one opportunity. Well, okay, theoretically, you only get that one opportunity to end a series, right? Yeah. So you try to milk it for as much as you can. But one could argue in the current comics environment, there are hundreds of endings that are constantly being retreaded over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Did you have any more to say on on Joe Casey, or uh, should I go into my my pick? Go ahead, man. Go ahead. I think I've uh, said enough. No, it was it was good stuff. It's good listening, and you know I I've read some of those uh, comics, and it's been a while since I've read them, so they're not super fresh in my mind. But it's definitely something to revisit now that I've uh, listened to you. So my first my choice uh for endings one of the ones that always stuck out to me and this is this was a pretty tough exercise for me because it really i don't know like i couldn't really think of too many stories where the ending on its own was the thing that like really made me feel something i'd say probably uh overall uh I, i i just usually tend to consume everything as as a whole you know, um, yeah. as all, all works as a whole. So it was hard for me to come up with something, but I thought about it a little bit and I came up with the Batman, the killing joke. It's uh, written by Alan Moore, someone we just mentioned earlier. He's the writer and Brian Boland did the arts and the colors on it. And this is probably up there in one of the most well-known Batman stories. Um, it's a story where, it's pretty short. It just exists on its own. Um, and I think most people know it for really the, well, what it's known for is the violent uh, attack on Barbara Gordon. That's probably the thing that most people tend to focus on. So, yeah. uh, but for me personally, I think the beginning and the ending of this uh, book are are some of the more meaningful and thought-provoking things for me, you know? Um, It's a story where that starts out with Batman going to Arkham Asylum and the opening pages are him going into the the asylum to meet up with the Joker and he wants to have a sit-down conversation. And he goes into this entire, like, model... Well... I guess, would it be a monologue? It's not really a monologue, is it? He's talking to somebody, but the other person doesn't really say anything. Yeah, so does that count as a monologue, or is that just talking to somebody who's not talking back? Uh, you know, that's a good question, man. We gotta ask some kind <laughs> of literary uh, expert. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm gonna read the page to you. Um, so... He comes into the uh, asylum and he sits down and the Joker is sitting there and he's playing like solitaire or something with a deck of cards. And Batman sits down and he goes, hello, I came to talk. I've been thinking lately about you and me, about what's going to happen to us in the end. 
We're going to kill each other, aren't we? Perhaps you'll kill me. Perhaps I'll kill you. Perhaps sooner, perhaps later. I just wanted to know that I'd made a genuine attempt to talk things over and avert that outcome just once. And there's something about that idea that... Wait, wait, hang on a sec. I really like how you dropped your voice and acted a little gruffer when you read his dialogue. Thank you. I, uh... I noticed it, man, yeah. Thank you. I, uh, you know, I, I know that people tend to typecast me as a 1920s gangster, but, uh, I have range. versatile, dude. I have range. Yeah. <laughs> that was me doing my, uh, uh, Kevin Conroy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, I always found something poetic in this idea, like in a world where Batman and the Joker as far as we can tell, will continue their conflict into infinity as these characters. Um, Batman finally goes out of his way and he says, and he tells himself, I'm going to do something completely out of the ordinary, something completely unexpected. You know, in in a world where all of our resolutions come at the the end of a fist, I'm going to try to negotiate with this guy. I'm going to talk to him, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that idea, I remember reading that for the first time when I was, uh, you know, in I, I want to say I was probably like in middle school and I had never read something like that. You know, just the idea that he has this kind of self-awareness of how ultimately this is going to end for these two characters. And. And. There's there's something powerful in that drama of just being so desperate to 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 find any sort of resolution that will come out in any other way other than either forcing Batman to kill the Joker or the Joker killing him, you know? Mm-hmm. So after that, everything that happens, it, like I mentioned earlier at the top of this, all of the stuff that happens that the comic is known for. What ends up happening is the Joker escapes and he goes on a crime spree and well, no, he doesn't go on a crime spree. The the Joker escapes and what he intends to do is he intends to, it's almost like theater. He intends to prove a point and the way that he wants to prove a point is he is going to kidnap Commissioner Gordon and he is going to torture him to the breaking point by by physically torturing him but also mentally torturing him by uh just doing terrible awful things to the people in in uh commissioner gordon's life namely barbara gordon his daughter and over the course of the story intermittently throughout you see flashes of what may or may not be the life that the joker had before uh he became the joker um, you know, it's important to keep in mind that he's, uh, what's it called? A, uh, he's a narrator, like, a, a unreliable narrator. He's an unreliable narrator. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, yeah, like I said, once, but, but the thing about it is once we get to the end, that is some pretty shocking drama. You know, what we end up seeing is Batman's able to save Commissioner Gordon and he goes up to the Joker and, you know, they have their fight. 
and Batman kicks the crap out of the Joker, as would be expected. But once he has him dead to rights, Batman continues the conversation from where he left off at the beginning. And he basically says everything that he said in that earlier scene. And he's just trying to level with the Joker, just trying to talk to this guy and just saying, there's got to be some other way that this plays out, you know? Mm -hmm. And the Joker, like, it's pretty, it's kind of chilling to see it because one, Brian Boland's art is super chilling, but just the way that it plays out, like the Joker, he isn't maniacal. He isn't cackling. He isn't laughing in this moment. He's just, it's almost like, for a brief moment in time, he's he's sane, you know? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, the Joker talks, he, he gives an honest response. He, he gives this, he tells this story to the Batman, or a joke, I guess, where he talks about how there are two uh, asylum patients that are trying to escape from the asylum. And one of them proposes that he shines a, that, he jumps across with a flashlight and then he'll shine the light and the other uh, person will get on that beam of light and walk across it to the other side to freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And the second, you know, so that's already crazy in and of itself in terms of an idea, but the second, uh, uh, inmate or uh, the uh, crazy person. I'm, I'm not sure what the term is, but um, crazy person. <laughs> that sounds like a scientific term. I don't know what the medical term is for that, but <laughs> uh, but the second person, uh, the the inmate, the the asylum patient goes, "Are you crazy?" And that's when the punchline kicks in. He goes, "I'm probably gonna walk halfway across this light, and then you're gonna shut it off." And, you know, that's the punchline of the joke. And it ends with uh, them just kind of standing there in the rain in the aftermath of all this just terrible stuff that the Joker has done. And Batman has gotten his response. And the response is basically, like, we're just too far gone and we can't trust each other. It's never going to happen, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. this, this good faith proposal that you've made to me like, there's no way that we're going to turn around from this. And it just ends with them just laughing maniacally with each other in the <laughs> rain, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was something always kind of haunting and depressing about that when I stopped to think about it. And thinking about it, reading uh, reading it this time around, it also did make me think, like, I don't know what... Alan Moore was trying to say, if anything, if, if if he was just trying to tell this dramatic story, but there is something about that where if you, again, if you look at it metatextually, uh, it, it does kind of have something to say about the state of comics as a whole, where these characters are going to live forever, you know, and the the, the natural cycle of their existence is just going to be this constant back and forth, you know? And it's interesting to think of that conversation as as just a moment outside of time where they try to address just the absurdity of that existence, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And and to close it with the idea that no, this is just our lot in life. Like it it almost makes you imagine them as 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 just like these beings that are just trapped in this eternal hell of of just living out this existence that never ends where they're just gonna fight each other for all time, you know? It's like uh Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Exactly. Exactly, right? So Yeah. Kinda makes you uh or kinda makes me think of that one issue of Animal Man that Grant Morrison wrote where he did a story about the coyote Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. And I wonder the, Yeah, the Coyote wonder, Gospel. Yeah, I wonder if on some level that was kind of a response to to something like the killing joke or just the the cyclical nature of superheroes. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I definitely see uh themes that are mirrored in both of these stories, right? Like I mm-hmm. I know that Alan Moore does have a lot to say about the state of comics. Like it's something that he's been talking about for years. And I think on the face of it, the killing joke might have less to say than something like Watchmen or uh you know a lot of his other comics but Mm -hmm. or heck it has less to say than any interview that he's ever given really you know yeah (laughs) but even even in spite of that um you know i i feel like those ideas can't help but shine through uh even in something that is just told as a straight dramatic story that he's Mm -hmm. telling you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a pretty uh it's a pretty i guess well-loved book uh it's it's one of the i guess most of the times it's one of the stories that most people consider one of the best joker stories if not up there in contention for or or on the lists of best joker stories but i think we talked about it when we did our evergreen joker stories episode that makes sense that makes sense it's it's hard not to include it if not for just its impact on the Joker, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that ending always did stick out to me as something pretty chilling and pretty shocking, you know? And thinking about it in terms of uh, what Alan Moore has to say about comics, it's it's interesting too. It's In addition to that, I also was going to discuss just a little bit um, how... It's also an ending that has a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people like to, I guess, theorize about it. It's it's an, it's an ending that mm-hmm. a lot of people tend to look at and try to dissect and come up with different, different interpretations for its meaning. And uh, one of the ones that I famously remember is uh, Grant Morrison, which you just mentioned in Animal Man, of, of Animal Man fame, as well as a whole bunch of other comics. Um, one of the things that he talked about was how the ending was the last Batman and Joker story. And, and I don't know if Grant Morrison was being serious or if he was being cheeky or what, but Mm -hmm. I remember he was in an interview, uh, he was on, uh, Kevin Smith's podcast and Kevin Smith was asking about him, asking him about the killing joke. And Grant Morrison was saying that he loves it because it's the last Joker story and he says, <laughs> and he says, that moment where they're standing in the rain, and uh, they're laughing maniacally with each other, 
the panels continue on and suddenly the laughter stops, you know, and the water begins to pile up and uh, eventually the water just overtakes everything and it just becomes the, the, the scene just goes straight to black. And Grant Morrison's uh, theory was, yeah, once they stop, they're, they're laughing together. And once they stop laughing, it just, uh, it just, you know, the, the implication being that Batman put his hand on Joker's shoulder and broke Joker's neck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. He just murders the Joker at the end. That's why he stops laughing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I first heard that theory, it, that made me laugh, man. I thought that was a pretty funny way to, because it it had never crossed my mind, you know? Yeah. Like for, for years I had read, and reread the killing joke and that never a single time crossed my mind <laughs> until Grant Morrison said it. Yeah. And like I think it picked up a little bit of traction. Uh like people still kind of cite that idea. I don't know how popular it is, but uh yeah, it's funny, man. It is funny. Mhm. Yeah. Uh Yeah, I I had one other like Yeah, never mind. I'll I'll save it for some other time. Okay. But uh, oh, yeah, go ahead, man. Don't don't hold back, man. Don't hold back. Well, I mean, it's they're not. It's there's no real way to transition into it. So uh, I was gonna say uh, I did a, a cursory look at our uh, statistics for who looks at our podcast, and I wanted to give a shout out to the hundred something people in Ireland who listen to us. I know that has nothing to do with Grant Morrison. I'm aware he's Scott. He's a Scott. So he's. <laughs> But that's just where my mind went. That's all I'm saying is like shout out to our Irish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Man, now I feel like we should have talked about like a Garth Ennis comic or something. Yeah, I mean, I was I was gonna attempt to do a voice, but that probably that definitely would have been offensive. <laughs> <laughs> you doing your, your uh, Scottish accent? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or my Irish accent, even. And I don't even know if I could tell those two apart. (laughs) But for our Irish listeners, if you're still out there, if you're still listening to us, we want you to know we hear you and we love you. (laughs) Uh, I want more. In 2022, I want more Irish listeners. (laughs) Man, that right. that was a pretty funny transition. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was over here kind of fumbling in my own head, like, how do I transition from Grant Morrison, who's a Scot Scotsman, to our Irish listeners? And I was just fumbling with it, and I had nothing. And I just had to just be like, I'm gonna let this go. I can't. I can't make it. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Drew. You got. Uh... What are some of your other uh, endings that you wanted to discuss? Okay, so I got a couple of endings from an, my other favorite writer, Peter Milligan, who is British. I think he's an Englishman. But uh, Peter Milligan, yeah, he's just always been one of my favorite writers ever since I got back into comics uh, when I was in college. So, you know, like around 20 years or so. Uh, just a lot of his vertigo work resonated with me and and fascinated me and has always been stuff that i can go back to and 
reread time and again to plumb for its depth because he's he's definitely a guy that has written a lot of comics that you can tell he wrote them you know for you know just because it's a job you know like a lot of his some of his marvel and dc stuff was was just you know nothing nothing too spectacular but when when uh he does his own thing and you can you can really tell uh the difference in in the level of quality and it's not to say that his like his marvel and dc stuff was was bad or anything like i i enjoyed the fact that he wrote something ridiculous like electra and you know later on in his career he wrote something like greek street which you know they both have that sort of greek theme to them (laughs) you know clearly one of them is way sillier than the other yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah anyway um there are two two endings of his that i wanted to bring attention to and one of them is for this classic 90s comic called enigma so Enigma was an eight-issue Vertigo miniseries from 1993 that had art by Duncan Figredo and colors by Sherilyn Van Valkenburg. Enigma is this existentialist postmodern superhero comic. And I'll, I'll just read you the back summary of the paperback um, because, you know, that'll be easier than me trying to fumble over my words to give a synopsis. Michael Smith's childhood hero, the Enigma, seems to have come alive, to have stepped from the very pages of a comic book. Now Michael is driven by a terrible desire to find him, an obsession that threatens to destroy his world. Enigma, a tale of sexual obsessions, flying lizards, and superheroes. (laughs) So, like, what a selling point, right? Like, what a way to, to sell the comic on the back cover. And I really like this work. It it's really inventive, creative. The artwork is excellent. Uh, I mean, th- there's like a whole lot of depth that uh, could be dived into just to discuss Enigma as a whole. But I just want to bring attention to to the ending specifically because this is, I think, a great example of an awesome final page of a story. Because the... The way that the story is structured, there's there is an an omniscient uh, narrator narrating the events, but even from the very beginning of the story, you can tell that uh, he's he's ridiculing the characters that he's uh, talking about. You know, like, and you don't really you don't know who the narrator is. It's 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 probably not like the main character or or one of the other uh, supporting cast members. You just know that there's this this uh omniscient narrator and here just l- let me read the first page like the first page is just as awesome as the last page so the first page is a splash page of a farm and the farm's a little bit dilapidated but it's a picture of a farm and there's a well in the picture but uh here's what the narration says you could say it all started in Arizona 25 years ago on a farm It was an ordinary sort of farm in Arizona. The kind of place where you'd have sexual relations with your parents and end up shooting someone. (laughs) Dude, come on. If that doesn't draw you in and make you want to see see what happens on the next page, I don't know what will. Like, (laughs) 
Peter Milligan's first pages are awesome, man. I tell you, like, if you look at so many of his comics, most of them have awesome first pages. But anyway, I think what makes the last issue or the last page of the last issue stand out to me is that this is the page where we finally see who's been narrating the story to us in the first place. And I'm not going to spoil it because I think reading it and discovering it for yourself is going to be just so much more fun. But yeah, it, it definitely gives you a sense of symmetry. Like it closes off uh, and, and uh, goes back to like where the story began with that first page makes everything clear as to like why why the narrator has been narrating with this specific tone of voice. Um, you find out who he's talking to and it's just, yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't want to spoil it, but it, it's just perfect, man. It, it's, it's funny. It makes so much sense. And it's the kind of thing that, that uh, immediately makes you want to go back to the first page after you read the last panel. <laughs> it's like, man, that is, that's some clever stuff. And I, yeah, I would highly recommend reading enigma it was recently reprinted actually just a couple months ago in a hardcover format yeah they, really nice they released, yeah they released a definitive edition uh under uh dark horse because it's a creator-owned book and i guess milligan was able milligan and figredo must have been able to get the rights back and since karen berger has her burger books at uh dark horse i think uh you know it makes sense that one of the early standout vertigo comics gets re-released as a burger book in a hardcover <laughs> format so yeah you you definitely uh for anyone who hasn't read it definitely this is worth checking out if you enjoy uh complex and creative and experimental superhero type of stories like this is a even if you don't like superhero comics it's it's still a story that it's like barely a superhero comic you know like this is really more of an existential coming of age story yeah and i do feel like this is a comic that it, it's it's another one that it's been a while since i read it but it's it's one where i don't necessarily remember if the plot you know if the ending was the kind of ending where the plot was really the main focus as much as it was the expression as well as the the emotions and the ideas behind the culmination of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an outstanding piece of work. And I think in the years since it's been published, uh, it's influence has just continued to grow because this is, it might not have been a big hit in terms of sales and a big hit with the masses, but I think a lot of well-known comic book creators who grew up, reading comics in the 90s cite enigma as you know kind of this formative work or like a landmark work of the 90s mm, mm. like I, I i remember reading that uh kieran gillen had some great things to say about it um you know th this is an important piece of 90s comics and it's worth reading on its own merits and that last page i'll tell you that's that's a nice last page for an ending <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're yeah listening to you maybe it's time for me to revisit man it's yeah been... I, I still got to get the hardcover myself i need to upgrade yeah. my old paperback in fact yeah once it comes in uh like i gotta check that out too totally man totally
Yeah. And the other Peter Milligan comic uh, or ending that I wanted to briefly touch on was Ecstatics number 26. And we, we talked about Ecstatics in a lot more detail on one of our older episodes because we had that on our, our Marvel Top 25. But uh, Ecstatics was his X-Men book with Mike Allred that was a pretty zany take on mutants in the X in the Marvel universe. And it was also a commentary, social commentary on celebrity and fame and popularity. But the thing is with ecstatics is that it, that's another book that got canceled, but he at least had, they at least had a chance to get one issue to, to kind of wrap things up. So with ecstatics number 26, I'm pretty sure on the cover itself, it it says uh, that it was meant to be like a strangely down downbeat ending. Yeah, but uh, it it's a story that pretty much ties the knot on not only his entire run but on the characters as well. It, it's almost like no one else is gonna really use these characters, and I'm gonna and on the way out we are gonna leave these characters in an unusable state. Yeah. So they, they end up, they end up killing everybody. Yeah. Uh, and some of them die pretty ignominious deaths. Like I think dupe dies off panel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So no, this was one of the books that made it to our uh, top 25, man. So yeah. Yeah. But it's um, just a genius way to end a, a story because it, it gives you that closure in the sense of like, this is the these are the final actions of these characters and you know they're 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 dead so there's nothing more that can really be done with them uh moving forward you know their their stories have definitively concluded but it also gives us that emotional payoff too like the entire series like people on the team have been dying left and right um so you're kind of mentally prepared for for losing people and yet uh the funny thing is i think is that even after this came out they still brought back a bunch of these characters and and you know like dupe showed up in wolverine and the x-men and there wasn't really any explanation for that yeah (laughs) i mean didn't they do a series like years later uh where they invited milgan and elred back to just kind of revisit these characters yeah yeah they did they did yeah so yeah it it it's almost one of those things where Milligan and Allred were like, you know, we're, we're just going to close the book on these characters and uh, kill them all. And then, you know, years later, they get invited to do another take on them. And it yeah. kind of like doesn't even matter that they're dead, you know, like it. Yeah. It's like these are their characters and, and they're going to do what they want to do with them. So even if Marvel brings them back or kills them, it's it's kind of immaterial because as, if it's. If it's not Peter Milligan and Mike Allred working on them, you know, it like who really cares? Yeah. I mean, it's again, like the the book that they made happened like years after the first one ended and the fact that they brought back Milligan and Allred to work on it, it's it's just a testament to of like what Marvel recognized in what they had with these uh with this uh comic right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah it it just feels like at this point 
it's not something that they could really give to anybody else. You know, it would just feel very yeah. much like a pale imitation of watered whatever down. the yeah pale watered down imitation of whatever the first original thing was. So, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I remember that ending too, and yeah, this is an example of an ending where. I imagine that due to circumstances, they just, uh, you know, they, I, I don't know. I, it's been a while since I read it, but, and I don't necessarily remember like if there were like other plot threads that, that were left hanging or anything, but it, it was the kind of ending that felt like if, if anyone else had done it, it would have felt like it was just this abrupt ending just for the sake of an ending. But because, Milligan and Allred were doing it and they were making very conscious decisions in how it was going to play out in spite of how abrupt it was there 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 felt like there was a purpose behind the chaos you know mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so yeah um for sure what do you got next oh right um, so this is something that I read this year, uh, and this is from the series Northlanders. It's by Brian Wood, and it, it's got various artists on it. On on it, he he worked with uh, you know the likes of Leonardo Fernandez, Ricardo Bercelli, and Simone Gain. Um, this was a Viking series that like a, a long form Viking epic that he did. Uh, I want to say, what is the year? Oh, well, I don't really have the years uh, that the stories were produced, but uh, the specific story that I worked on or, or that I'm going to, Oh no, it says here 2017. Uh, but the specific story, that's, that's that I'm, when the uh, trade came out, probably uh, the oh, okay. series ran around. Like, I think it started around like 2008 and lasted a few years. Okay. Okay. So um, the specific story that I'm going to reference to was called The Plague Widow. And this was something, it wasn't necessarily the end of the series, but it was one short story among a bunch of uh, loosely connected stories and some more connected than others uh, over the course of the 50 issues that he did. But Mm -hmm. it was about a young woman who who uh, lives in this small village and a plague comes to this village and, you know, <laughs> the people within uh, are, are faced with hard decisions that they have to make in order, in terms of how they're going to uh, overcome this plague. And uh, the reasonable leaders of the group are telling people that they need to isolate the community and make sure that uh, they need to follow certain protocols to make sure that um, uh, uh, that essentially that they don't get infected with the virus, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but what ends up happening is, of course, there are people within the community who are acting up, and because they either don't believe in how viruses work, or or they don't believe in. <laughs> it feels all too relevant, doesn't it, for something that was made around 2008? 
<laughs> so they either don't believe in how viruses work or they're just so pig-headed and stubborn that they refuse to follow protocol. And what ends up happening is um, the entire village ends up, well, a lot of people within the village end up getting sick and, uh, you know, uh, from this virus. But then on top of that, uh, the the more raucous, rambunctious elements within the uh, village see an opportunity and they rise up and usurp power from the government. I mean, the village elders. (laughs) 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 Uh, Brian Wood and Leandro Fernandez saw the future. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right? And but um, but the thing about the story is the the brunt of the story is told from the perspective of uh, a young woman who lives uh, who's a part of the community, and just her husband has died early on in the story, and just her struggle to survive as a woman in this community. So I that being said, I feel like and a mother with a young daughter. Exactly, and. You know, that being said, I need to mention this because it's, uh, you know, meta context or it's context. But, uh, you know, Brian Wood has recently been in trouble for uh, harassment of women. So, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that even though he's telling the story of this young woman as a survivor, uh, you know, in a vacuum on the, on, on the face of it, it seems like it's a very, like, uplifting story but there are certain things yeah inspirational story but there are things about it that are you know you can't help but question in light of uh information that's given but that being said that being said uh so what ends up happening is uh they 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 end up overthrowing the uh the leader that has usurped the government or the, the the village elders and you know everything for the most part i wouldn't say it goes back to normal but you know they uh they end up resolving uh, like like i said they ousted the usurpers and but because of her actions she and her daughter are forced out of the community and they're in the frozen norths so it's understandable you know that uh, being exiled is almost as bad as the death sentence at this point, because yeah. with no community to survive in, uh, with no community to survive in, they're 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 going to die out there in the wilderness. So the final, the ending that I wanted to focus on was the ending to this story within the overall story of uh, Northlanders, where the young woman uh, and her daughter are just struggling to survive in the wilderness and they go out there and they're just dodging uh, bands of unknowns, which could be people that are robbers or rapists or just even other villagers that would just do them harm, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, over it all, they're discussing just, you know, what it's like to survive out in these, in these elements and eventually her mother succumbs to just the uh, the conditions and she's she's you know 
sickly and dying. But over it all, there's uh, the narration that just talks about what it means to survive in this uh, wilderness and like just the the fortitude of of what it means having survived that and her daughter ends up taking it upon herself this is a, a a very young girl mind you she takes it upon herself to go out into the wilderness and, and you know they've at this point they've hidden uh, they found like a small cave to hide in just for the time being but it's still cold there's still mm-hmm. a, a massive lack of food so eventually towards the end she goes out into the wilderness to to seek help you know and uh she ends up finding these strangers that she's not aware of uh and you know just through an act of faith and hope uh she ends up you know it it, she ends up finding uh salvation and and rescue but at the end of it all the the very last page of it is just it's pretty masterfully done i thought it was really good looking it's just her going out into the wilderness and she stumbles upon this small community and it's just her it there aren't any words but you just see these other people in the community coming to her as she leads them off into the as she points in the direction of her mother you know it's Mm -hmm. yeah i just thought as a way to close that story it was a really well done uh ending to the story i i just realized it's actually called mothers and daughters or of uh, of mother and daughter the plague widow was its own story but the conclusion to it was its own single issue hmm. uh you know so that that's definitely something that i'd recommend just in terms of like maybe it was because of just how relevant it felt that it stuck out to me but I just felt like it was a pretty uh, well done close to that story. And it was inspirational just in the sense that these characters. So I don't want to reveal too much, but uh, because Drew is currently in the middle of reading Northlanders. But I would say (laughs) that uh, this story is in line with the overall theme of Northlanders as a whole once you get to the final ending of the actual story mm-hmm. and that theme being just that these people live in a savage world and theirs is a world where they have to do whatever they have to do in order to survive. Ultimately they will thrive and ultimately they will find a way to, uh, to persist uh, and, you know, thrive. Well, maybe not thrive, but exist. survive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I did think that it's a pretty harrowing story. Yeah, pretty well done. So that's that's something that I would recommend. And maybe, you know, us being in the midst of COVID and, you know, having lived the lives that we've lived for the past couple of years, it's the sort of thing that'll give you a little bit of inspiration, you know? Yeah, yeah. Either that or it could uh, increase your anxiety levels. <laughs> Uh, they overthrew the village elder oh no (laughs) yeah the i just read the plague widow story a couple weeks back so like i'm like i know you finished the entire series so I'm, i'm lagging behind you but yeah that 
a lot of that uh, strangely relevant stuff like definitely jumped out at me. I was like, man, even on the cover of the of the comic, it's the mother. She's wearing a you know a face mask covering you know the, her nose and her her mouth, and you just see yeah. a bunch of uh, grave markers behind her. It's like, dang, that's a that image. It hits close to home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> the the ending too is it that was a pretty powerful ending because uh i think the story is it feels more it, it's it's almost like a horror comic in a way like i think uh you know the traditional horror story people usually think of something with with monsters and or some kind of supernatural creature and things of that nature but I actually thought that this was more of a horror story than a lot of those kinds of comics because, you know, I, th- I think we've said in the past on on our podcast how horror is a really hard genre to do in in comics because you don't have the advantage of of things like jump scares and a lot of times it's in when you read like a, a prose work of horror most of the horror comes from getting to know and care about the characters and then feeling that empathy when they're in danger and you know you, you feel the their fear as as they're running but like for some for whatever reason like that that feels like a rare thing in comics it, it feels like a lot of horror comics are just like zombie stories or or vampire stories or you know they're just people fighting monsters and whatnot and and it, i don't know for some reason that that stuff just never never interests me it never yeah. really makes me feel the horror yeah yeah but uh, I thought that this story, there there is something horrifying about it because even though there's nothing like supernatural, they're they're fighting a virus that they can't see, and it's it's driving the people who live in that uh, little village against each other because everybody's like paranoid, everybody's trying to look out for him him or herself. Yeah. They're all afraid of of getting sick. That's uh, so hard they to don't... believe. It's such a <laughs> fiction. I couldn't imagine that in a hundred years. <laughs> Brian Wood, what an imagination on that guy, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, and on top of that, the story starts with the widow losing her husband, and she's she's got this daughter, and it's up to to her to protect her child. And it, it, they live in this like brutal society that that is uh you know it's like a patriarchal type of society so if if you're a, a lone woman with a young daughter like yeah. what how much agency or power do you actually have you know like you kind and of have to trying to take advantage of that yeah exactly either and, and taking there's... goods from her or trying to get you know take uh, like you said trying to remove her agency from her you know taking from her body or mm-hmm. her livelihood yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so there's definitely that element of of fear that you feel along you as the reader feel alongside with her as as you're discovering how she's trying to navigate this this uh society circumstance, society, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Th- and like just knowing that she's got a daughter on top of all that, it's it's a scary thing, man. And yeah. I feel like the way that it it ends um you were talking earlier about how it ends with the daughter finding this other uh, settlement and uh, she just 
tries to point them to to the direction where her mother is and yeah. and that that's how it ends so we don't actually see if if they find her mother because yeah. the last time we see her mother her they're in the she cave was on and, the brink of death yeah she was on the brink of death in that cave and yeah. that's when the daughter had to to run for help so it ends on that ambiguous note where you you don't know one way or the other whether her mother will be okay it, it just it's it's just left to your imagination, and I, I guess if you're if you're an optimistic type of reader, then then you can probably imagine them finding her mother in time, and you know then they they're able to be in this uh, new settlement together. But yeah. otherwise, like for all we know, when the other people get there, get to that cave, they're just gonna find a cold corpse. Well, I'm gonna go back a little bit to what you just said. So. Um... Yeah, even in that last panel, I I have to admit the first time I read it, I I really had to stand stare at that last splash page for a while, or not splash page, but that last page for a while because when this whole time she and her mother have been trying to avoid all these other people in fear that they'd either they rob them or harm them, right? And Right now, at this point in the story, just out of sheer desperation, she's gone. She's left the safety of her cave just to find anyone, anyone yeah. that'll help her. And the last scene of the page is her coming out of the wilderness and, you know, calling out to these people. And then the last scene is all these people rushing her. And I, I really had to look at it. There's, there is this one woman over here that has that's running towards her with a blanket. But there was something about it where I was like. I, I'm assuming they're trying to help her, but if there was an interpretation where these were like awful people who were going to do something to her, that wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility see, see, either. The, the woman isn't bringing a, rushing towards her with a blanket. She's rushing towards her with a, you know, she's going to put a bag over her head to like she's knock her out. smother her. Yeah, exactly. You know, right? just, just like how uh, Batman choked out the Joker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... I thought it was a very like harrowing survival story, you know, like that. The Plague Widow had a lot going on for it in terms of a story, but that that ending, just yeah, I'd, I'd say it's inspirational. And uh, you know, in these Strangely trying times, our times, yeah, exactly. In these trying times, if you need something to give you that little bit of hope, uh, this is the kind of story that might do it for you, you know. Yeah, if if you like reading stories about people dealing with pandemics, <laughs> this this is story to go to. <laughs> uh, well, if you want a story about them ultimately uh, uh, winning out over the pandemic and winning out over the entire situation, because that's sorely lacking in your life, then yeah, <laughs> this might be the one. <laughs> uh, what you got, Drew? I got a couple of superhero comics that I want to talk about, and both of them are by Jonathan Hickman. So the first one I want to talk about is a story from his Fantastic Four run. So this is an ending, not of his entire run on the Fantastic Four, but just the end of a story arc within his ongoing run. And at this point, he was writing Fantastic Four and FF, the Future Foundation. But uh, I want to talk specifically about Fantastic Four issue 604. 
This one has art by Steve Epting, and this is the conclusion to the story arc titled Forever. And just as a, a bit of context here, uh, it's a story, like there, there's a lot to it, but what you need to know is that we're at a point where the Fantastic Four uh, are in a battle with mad celestials from the interdimensional uh like they, they i think these are mad celestials from an interdimensional portal and uh they you know they're they're set to basically destroy destroy reality as we understand it and only the fantastic four can stand in their way and at this point the fantastic four consists of you know the usual four johnny storm has uh just come back to life at the beginning of the story and then they've got their two kids but they've also got both of their kids as grown-up versions who came back to the past so they could help in this in this battle and it like everything that hickman had been writing up to this point was it was a very reed richards centric book because the the story like the overarching story features reed richards discovering uh the multiverse of other reed richards so they form this council of reeds basically who decide that they can fix they can fix every problem in the multiverse to create you know some sort of utopia but the the problem is that all of these other reed richards they've sacrificed everything in their lives to to fix everything else because it it goes back to that idea of of uh the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few <laughs> so that they don't they don't subscribe to the albert philosophy at all they do not <laughs> they do not they they are willing to Mine, sacrifice <laughs> mines is a completely foreign concept to them <laughs> yeah yeah these guys these all these other reed richards are willing to sacrifice the love of their families so they can focus on the good of the multiverse except for our reed richards you know the 616 reed richards he's he's the one who didn't sacrifice sue in order to pursue his goals he he ended up uh you know staying with with his family basically he chose his family over the multiverse and then the the story basically ends with with the scene of how everything's, you know, like looking bad, like the Avengers are fighting somewhere else in this losing battle. And then the Fantastic Four are facing off directly against these Celestials. And uh, it's up to the the future version of Franklin Richards to to try and do what he can and and fight these Celestials because he's he's the only one who has nearly like he's the only one who has a hope in terms of just sheer power so he ends up fighting these celestials and it's a scene where he i mean long story short he he uses his power to to summon galactus <laughs> it's it's like one of the most iconic scenes of the hickman run i think where nice. yeah you see this scene where he's he's like exchanging energy blasts with with a celestial and then he he has this uh orb of energy that he 
he uh, commands, and it it's basically like the life essence of of Galactus, and he just calls calls for Galactus to rise, rise, you know, like he's yelling, <laughs> then, rise, pretty much. And then uh, the very uh, end of it, like the last couple panels, you see this. It starts with a lifeless Galactus, and then the energy orb reaches him, and then Galactus's eyes open, and then Franklin reaches out with his hand, an open hand full of just Kirby crackles, and he says, to me, my Galactus! <laughs> you know, like, the way that Galactus would summon his own herald, because Galactus is Franklin's herald. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's uh, so over the top, but it's it sounds, I have no other way to describe it, but like, deliciously, like, fun, you know? It's, it, it is, man. Like, that. that's a... That's a sequence I can reread over and over. So you see this awakened Galactus arrive, and he starts fighting these. There's there's like three Celestials, and he, he starts fighting them, and he's he's able to to mess them up pretty bad. And then uh, yeah, like you you get the scene towards the end when you when the battle is basically over, and what what ends up happening is is that he's he's able to destroy these celestials but uh the other one of the other characters from the future who's in who's with the fantastic four he's actually uh i think he's reed's father he came back uh from the future to to try and help his family during this crucial moment he uh like he he knows that this is franklin's last stand and franklin is gonna sacrifice himself to to stop the celestial so that everyone else is going to be able to live so you see this crazy explosion as franklin tears apart the final celestial and then uh it goes to the characters on the ground and you see mr fantastic just you know covering his eyes yelling no and then there's this narration and i think it's a pretty good example of of Hickman's writing it's uh mm -hmm. like some some of the most affecting writing that I've ever seen from Hickman because people I feel like people think about Hickman as this ideas kind of guy like he's he's like the guy that comes up with these crazy science fiction and multiversal ideas and you know plays with time travel and and you know just these concepts and he, he does like superhero stories that that will just trick your mind and, and amaze you with with what he does but I think he he doesn't get enough credit as a as a guy who's just able to write really nice uh, affecting prose to go along with with uh, the action, you know. Yeah. So here here's what he writes. Here's what the narration says says. And for a moment there were two sons that day. And then you just see some scenes of of uh like the other heroes who are fighting elsewhere. And, you know, they're just looking out into the aftermath of this explosion. And the narration says, They marked the sky victorious. The earth stood. Her heroes, the difference. They had endured together. Old friends, new ones, and the generation to follow. They watched until the second sun flickered out. The light extinguished. The sign of the abandoned. The left behind. And the lost but it also meant a second chance. It signaled a new day, a future regained, 
And at this point, you see a scene of uh, Galactus, and he's just like got his hands cupped together. This is after the battle. He's he's coming up onto the Fantastic Four and their family, who are just you know this whole time they've just been on the ground watching a battle that they were powerless to participate in. And Galactus approaches them, and then uh, you see uh, the next panel where the the Fantastic Four are just looking up at him, and then the the narration says, "For if we live, there is hope." And then you flip the page. The next page is uh, Galactus opening up his hands, and you see Adult Franklin standing. He's he's okay. And then the the caption says, "And if we hope, then there is tomorrow. And if tomorrow, then forever." Nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that that is some good writing. Hickman does a lot of like really grand. He does grandiosity very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's really grand. It's it's one of those stories that's that's grand, but it's also deeply personal, you know, which is which is a crazy hard trick to pull off. Mm-hmm. It's it's so grandiose. It's it's dealing with crazy uh, ancient celestials from another dimension that yeah. are bent on destroying everything, but it. it at the at the end of it, man, it, it's it's just a story about about family. It's it's about yeah. It's, it's basically a story about how uh, our the six one six Reed Richards saved reality because he didn't forsake his family. That's great. You mm-hmm. know, I think there are a lot of times where they tell stories with Reed where he's. He's portrayed as this guy who's so focused on the science that he loses sight of his family. And yeah, you know, uh, to tell to to especially to tell a story where you have something like this council of Reed Richards and to indicate the one thing that makes this Reed different is the love of his family and how ultimately that love of his family is the thing that is what saves the universe and that's what makes this read different exactly that's that's really cool you know yeah because no matter what all those other reed richards can invent they can't produce a child if they don't have the love of sue richards yeah yeah so franklin richards is technically (laughs) his most important (laughs) contribution to society (laughs) you you can tinker all you want, but at the end of the day, it just takes an ounce of fluid <laughs> to sum up your legacy to the universe. Exactly. <laughs> That's terrible. You like that? You like that? Terrible. Oh, I love that. That is great. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I love Hickman's Fantastic Four run. It's so good. Yeah. The other Hickman comic I wanted to talk about uh, briefly is Secret Wars, because that was the the story that ended a pretty specific era of the Marvel Universe, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, so Secret I Wars by... Yeah, Secret Wars by Hickman and Asad Ribich was... An, 
it was a I think a nine issue miniseries that pretty much put the stamp on that era of the Marvel universe to the point, you know, like now we're in this the modern era or the current era, but it all came out of Secret Wars and and that that event comic it's probably the best event comic that there's ever been and it also functions as a great ending to that part that time of the Marvel universe but also uh it's a great ending for Hickman's time in the Marvel universe as well you know like it yeah it it flows right off all of his most uh major works for Marvel so like if you had been reading his Fantastic 4 his his Ultimates comics and his Avengers and New Avengers stuff like Secret Wars is a direct uh, outcropping or a, a direct conclusion to that, to all of those stories. And it, it, it just works so well um, in, in ending an era of Marvel and ending Jonathan Hickman's first era at Marvel. And it also does a good job setting up a, a new era. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that the, that everything that came out after it has been amazing stuff because, you know, clearly <laughs> it's a pretty mixed bag, yeah, but yeah. Secret Wars in and of itself just works really well. It's, I think, it it hits hard because it it got it's got this uh, symmetry to it where when you read his Fantastic Four comics, like even as far back as his Fantastic Four, and definitely throughout his entire Avengers and New Avengers stuff, there's that ongoing theme of how everything dies but with the end of secret wars it it ends with this idea that that everything lives yeah it's a it's a kind of this paradigm flip where reed richards and the other characters you know they 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 go from being kind of like this nihilistic outlook into being what superheroes are supposed to represent you know in an ideal picture which is which is life and and saving people and and being inspirational and all all, you know all of those all of those upstanding and and positive sorts of traits and ideas that's what that's what secret wars is about it's a story about how it's how it's okay to hope again you know and i I feel like that coming directly out of his avengers and new avengers was pretty incredible twist like you i mean obviously you knew that the characters that the heroes were gonna win at the end but the execution of it all man it's it's beautiful stuff and to to juggle all of these different uh characters in the story being an event comic it's it's really well done man really well done yeah yeah you're totally right just overall that entire run like, I haven't been able to get to it yet just because I've got such huge backlog of things. But um, the bits and pieces that I have read, it's it's great stuff, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Secret War, no less, is just, you know, him putting his stamp and on, on, on the Marvel Universe and giving his final thoughts, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It could be grander. What you got next, man? So the next comic that I have is 
My War Gone uh, Fury. My Go- War Gone By by Garth Ennis, and uh, I believe his name is Goran Parlov. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. See now, now we got our uh, Garth Ennis comic man. This could have been yeah. your chance to shout out our Irish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just a, a brief description of this comic. It's uh, it's it's based on a version of Nick Fury that uh, it's it's not the Samuel L. Jackson Fury that we know. It's uh, it's White Fury. Um, so this is a story about White Fury. White Fury. <laughs> Is that yeah. what we're calling him now? <laughs> <laughs> so the original Nick Fury was a white guy, so I call him White Fury. Uh, <laughs> so it's a story uh, that plays Nick Fury as a pretty straight character, as opposed to uh, a super spy. He's just a he's a regular um, he's he's a real. I guess the closest thing to a real-world uh, special ops agent. And it's a story that follows him over the course of his life within the within the service. You know, he goes from a young man to an old man. And um, unlike his Marvel, uh, his regular Marvel Universe counterpart, he's not, like I said, he's not a super spy. So whereas, um, you know, in this, in, in the main universe, his his character is is almost like a James Bondian kind of guy who who can get almost out of every situation in a pretty clean way. Uh, this version of him exists very much in uh, I, I guess I can only call it the real world or something closer to our real world, you know. Right. So he gets. It, the, each of the issues, each of the stories revolves around him going on different missions uh, for in the name of his country, you know. And but he rarely comes out unscathed, and if anything, he he often has to make compromises or decisions that that have pretty long term effects on him, you know. And in the in the case of this story, it's not just effects on him, but effects on the people in his life. And the very last issue of this, the the ending here that I'm going to discuss, uh, it takes place well into the future of of his life. You know, decades after he began. So at this point, he's he's been involved in in Cuba, in Vietnam, in uh, you know just various hot spots around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point in his story, he's, he's an old grizzled man at this point, And he just, there's a description of him, uh, in, in the final issue where one of the characters talks about him and she says that he's a man who's addicted to war. And that's, that was an interesting like description of him because, the comic is titled My War Gone By, but I feel like the other way to look at it would have been, for most people, it would have been My Life Gone By. And to 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 view it that way, to just see him as this man who's so committed to war, who knows nothing else but war, to the point that it consumes him so much that that's the entirety of his being. That's mm-hmm. That's what Nick Fury is at the end of his life. And this last issue, it just shows 
it's the culmination of those decisions all just coming up, you know? Yeah. So by the end of it, he's he's an old man and he's sacrificed a lot of his friends and relationships in the name of his mission, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a pretty it's a really downbeat story cuz one of the one of what ends up happening is at the end of his life uh or or he he ends up going to uh a funeral and at the funeral he sees one of his uh his enemies this guy by the name Litron, by the name of Litron Gap and this is someone that he was involved with as an adversary, you know, but mm-hmm. at the end of it all, they're just two, two old soldiers who have nothing left, but, uh, but the mission. And because of how the world has changed around them, it's, it's weird when he sees him at the, at the, uh, Vietnam Memorial, he flashes back to this scene of him as the young officer that like brutally tortured him and was like the thorn in his side. And for them to like stand there as well, not necessarily friends, but not enemies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they stand there and they're just, it's he's stunned because he doesn't know how to live this life anymore or how, because he doesn't know how to be like a normal person, you know, but especially against someone that he's just been, at odds with for so long and they're they're sharing uh bits about their life and at one point gap says we are both bound for hell colonel fury but i hope you find a comfortable place to wait you know um Mm -hmm. wait yeah so it's just this recognition where wait uh yeah, it's just this recognition that even though they're the survivors, like their lives are just not in a good place, you know. Mm-hmm. And the very last issue is also, like I said, it's this retrospective of all the people that have been wronged in his life. And there's this woman that I wouldn't necessarily call her a love interest. She's someone that Fury had some affection for. Like I, I don't know if love is the right word at the end of it all because again fury is such just such a cold guy in this story that it's hard to believe that he has anything even remotely close to love as 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 we understand it right yeah what ends up happening is throughout the course of the the uh mini series um they you know they tease the idea of these two characters getting together but she ultimately ends up married to this senator or this politician that uh she ends up married to this politician who oversees a bunch of who basically uses furies for his missions and at the end of their life uh what she's at the end of their life she's she was this pretty attractive young woman at the time but now she's just old and jaded and worn out and Mm -hmm. The politician, her her name's Shirley, this politician that she's ended up married to, it's such a warped relationship that they have because what ends up happening is he, although they're married, he has a young mistress that like lives 
in the house with him. <laughs> Jeez. You know, and it's just it's super messed up. Like he just he just has um he just has sex with her, like and parades her around the house and uh Shirley is just you know, understandably upset with just the direction that her life has taken. Mm-hmm. So there's this scene where uh she she walks she catches them with each other uh and she basically kills the young woman and before she kills uh him the politician uh she just talks about just how how wrong her life has gone and just because they just committed their lives to 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 war you know yeah. uh, it's it's this belief that uh it's this belief that they did it all for in the name of country you know uh in the name of idealism but in the end they weren't rewarded for it at all and what what did they get in response or in return but just a wasted life you know mm. um, yeah yeah, and she ends up killing killing him as he's with his mistress, and she gives uh, Fury this one final call, just letting him know that. Uh, well, I don't know if she necessarily wanted to be with him, but just letting him know that their lives could have been different, you know. And, and it's just such a downbeat, downbeat like ending to this series, but it's haunting how like how memorable it is to me. Mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean you yeah you definitely gravitate towards downbeat stuff so i can i can see yeah. that man that's one of those stories that i need to reread myself because it's, it's been a while yeah. like you describing it takes me back to it but I, I wouldn't have remembered it on my own you know yeah uh at one point i i feel like this sort of sums it up but at one point he meets the daughter of this uh of one of his compatriots someone that whose decisions uh he he affected you know like they they started out working together but she just he just ended up having uh a, a pretty messed up life because of all the stuff that all the decisions that uh they made uh all the decisions that fury made mm-hmm. and she she comes to the funeral to ask him you know she says, he said it all had gone wrong, that most of it had been completely pointless. We started out with the best of intentions, he said. And I guess I'm wondering, I guess I'm wondering, is what those in, is what those intentions were? Not so much what he did, I guess, more why, you know? Yeah. And Fury just doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really have too much of an answer. Um, yeah, what can he say? Yeah uh he 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 tells her a story about one time that they were sitting together and uh about he and her dad uh and he says the morning we met it was outside the embassy in saigon he was a little disappointed in me looked at the flag on top of the building asked if i believed it meant anything at all i said i thought it should i thought it should asked him what he thought it meant he said he said I was a cynic, that he shouldn't. We shouldn't waste each other's time. Then he said I wouldn't believe him if he told me anyway. So I said, "Try me." 
He told me it had to do with the debt we owed to the past and the responsibility we owed to the future. He said it all. He said it was right there for all to see blood on the band on the bandaged wounds of the brave men and all the stars in the sky. And then it just ends with Fury just sitting in a dark room by himself. It's mm. it's pretty affecting stuff, man. Like yeah. overall, I like it's it's a great book, but that ending is just it rips your guts out, man. Yeah. Yeah, we I definitely gotta reread that, man. We we should do a full episode on that. Yeah, it's worth doing a full episode on for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that I think I don't know. I don't know if other people feel the same, but sometimes like learning about the ending or hearing about it, it, it does make me interested in, in like seeing what the full story is. And yeah, granted I I've read this a while ago, so uh, it's not like it's going to be completely brand new, but it it definitely reminds me of what a good ride that was, you know? Like, that was a great yeah. piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that... It doesn't... It doesn't... It definitely doesn't feel like a superhero comic. And it's just really just a, a story of just the ravages of war and the toll it takes on the, the soul of a person, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got anything else? Figure we could wrap things up with a couple Alan Moore comics. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So one of them I want to talk about, uh, probably not too long, but uh, the book From Hell, which had art by Eddie Campbell. That's definitely one of my favorite comics. It's a book about jack the ripper it's one of the scariest books i've ever read scariest comics i've ever read and uh i don't think that what i'm gonna describe about the ending here is gonna spoil anything because it's 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 the whole thing is this kind of a fictionalized or imaginary take on on a real event or you know like a real uh historical incident exactly yeah so even though to this day we don't know for certain who jack the ripper was in from hell alan moore and eddie campbell they they start the whole thing uh told and tell the story with the assumption that there is a specific person who who was jack the ripper and you know there are many many theories about jack the ripper that uh you know you can read books and and stuff to go down a really deep rabbit hole but uh just the ending of their take on it uh and from hell i thought was really really masterfully done because it it goes in a place it goes in a direction that i i didn't expect them to like just to describe the ending in the the final issue of from hell ends with the with jack the ripper uh actually in an insane asylum and he's he's like at this point he's uh kind of like uh kind of like gone mad or just sort of uh vegetative and and lost in his own uh imagination where he like i guess from all the killings he's done he's he he 
just sees these things and, and actually thinks he's God because he's committed so many murders. Mm. And it's it's also kind of funny because you, you, you're not only seeing what's inside his head, but you're seeing what's going on around him while he's just kind of lying on the ground in a stupor in in, in the in the insane asylum like if there's a couple of uh other people like the orderlies or whatever you call them the people that work at the asylum are kind of standing near him and you know they're they're off their shift so they're just having sex nearby him even though he's just like <laughs> comatose <laughs> like they, they think he can't you know he's not like aware of his his surroundings anyway so they don't yeah. they don't really care <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, heck of and, a description <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's literally what's happening it's funny because in the collected editions of from hell there's some pretty detailed annotations from alan moore himself about all the stuff that's going on so you actually see some commentary that he provides on on the scene and what he had to say about that was because he like number one that whole that whole thing of of these two orderlies having sex near a patient he said that that was based on something real that his mom told him about when she was in a hospital <laughs> jeez yeah he had a heck of a heck of a life yeah <laughs> so so he so i guess he just thought it was funny but he also thought it was kind of poetic because like there's like the whole story has been about death but you know like right next to this deranged killer like two people are performing an act of life (laughs) (laughs) that is poetic straight up poetic man (laughs) but then you also see inside uh jack the ripper's head like he's he sees this vision where he imagines himself flying into the afterlife and he in his mind, he thinks he's gonna take his place next to next to all the various gods uh, of mythology or whatever. So he's like flying in the sky, and then he uh, looks upon this humble little uh, I don't know cabin or something. And outside of the out of the cabin walk uh, this woman and her and some kids, and and this woman just yells at him and basically says, "Get out of here! Uh, you know you don't." You don't belong here, and Gull is confused by it, and then like he, you know, he falls back into like this other, other uh, delusion, and and like that's kind of the end of that scene. But I think just trying to interpret that scene, I I don't actually I can't say for sure what it means, because even in the annotations, Alan Moore specifically writes as for as for these pages, you're just gonna have to I'm not gonna explain it. You're gonna have to like interpret it yourself. Like the way that I've always interpreted it is that it's it's really like the spirit of either one or several of the women that he killed, just you know, yelling at him. It's basically like they're like the whole story, it it's they're just kind of victims and they don't really have any any role beyond uh being being dissected and being killed. So it's like the one moment in the story where where they're able to look the devil in the eye and and tell him to to leave, you know? Like they they're able to have a voice even for just one moment for one scene and it's it's still like, you know, it's totally fictional, but I I thought there was something 
pretty powerful about it because it's it's such a long and dense graphic novel that by the time you get to that scene it it i don't know man like it's just something that always stuck with me all these years after the first time i read it and and it's yeah it's definitely one of my favorite comics i think everybody should should read it at least just for the craft of it Mm. i mean come on it's alan moore yeah yeah. it's arguably like his greatest work ever you know yeah so it's yeah, just an ending that has always stuck with me, hit me pretty hard, and I think it's it's the kind of thing where after I I read that ending, I just want to like bask in it, you know, like just enjoy that whatever feelings or emotions that it evokes. It, it's like the kind of kind of it's like the reason why we we consume fiction, you know, or appreciate art because it's something that makes you ponder or feel something. Yeah. Yeah, man, for sure, for sure. You want to go into the other Alan Moore? Work? Yeah, man. Yeah, let's let's uh, say a little bit about Watchmen. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think this is arguably one of the most recognized works for him. Like, you know. Yeah, it's probably it's, his most beloved. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the one that is most associated with him, and um, you know, it's it's something where uh i'm I'm trying to decide whether i'd really need to go into it that much but uh it's it's i think it's it's something where the ending has a lot to say about just his view on just life and and power dynamics as a whole but oddly enough one of the things uh, that jumped out at me in our discussion when when you asked about it uh, before we got on the podcast was, uh, well, I, I uh, you you asked me about things that had uh, endings that the masses weren't a fan of, and I feel like this work, Watchmen, in spite of the fact that so many many people have such affection for it, uh, and they're always like praising it as this. Uh, this work of that 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 broke the 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 lines between the the genre of like comics and like literature Mm -hmm. um they one of the things that i hear occasionally is the idea that the the ending is imperfect or the ending ruins it for some people because because (laughs) i don't know how else to put it but there's a giant squid alien in it, you know? Yeah. You know, it's it got to the point where when they made the movie, they even took it out of the movie, you know? And it's it's interesting to think, uh, like, the kind of person that would follow the, the course of this story all the way throughout and then have that one detail be the thing that ruins it for them. <laughs> uh it's it's strange to me you know yeah um, yeah you were saying that younger people uh, might have or take issue with it more than older people um and i, I think so yeah yeah that's just and my I'd feeling ha- part of me does wonder if it's something that's a byproduct of it just being in, in spite of it all it's still a work a comic book work, a work in comics, you know, and 
specifically maybe, a superhero comic. Exactly, right? So it's the sort of uh, plot detail which works for a superhero comic, even if people view it as, you know, a work of, like, literature, right? And Like, something more mature. So, I don't know, man. That's... I, I still think it has one of the... Well, I mean, I think most people would agree it still has one of the the greatest endings of all time. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. That's, Actually, was that even in the last issue? I don't even remember if that line was from the last issue. It's pretty iconic. I don't remember if it was the... I, I feel like that might have been the second to the last issue. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Because the, the last issue opens up with the shot of the, uh, the squid and all the bodies. Yeah, yeah. It it closes out the second to the last issue. Um, but it's it's definitely one of the most iconic scenes in, and one of the most shocking endings to the story right mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm trying to dance around it as much as possible in case anyone who reads it uh wants to save it for themselves but suffice it to say it's it's just it's it's if you're a fan of uh that kind of story telling where the ending i i feel like this definitely hits the sweet spot where it it emotionally and uh intellectually is is stimulating but in terms of the plot like it just hits a home run right there too you know yeah 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 so um without giving away too much it's 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 probably one of the most regarded well regarded endings in in comics history you know Mm-hmm. totally yeah. man yeah, and it it feels like Watchmen is probably something that we're gonna talk about again in the future on another episode at some point. Yeah, I I hearing you talk about it, I am kind of curious though. Like just in terms of it's how many years has it been? It, we're almost at thirty, maybe thirty years since it came out, if not more. Yeah, because Watchmen was nineteen eighty six, I think. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of curious to see like what modern people think about it young young people just how how it's aged since then like me and you we still ha- have a lot of love for it but we ain't young no more Yeah yeah I mean certainly when this comic originally came out I was I was like a little toddler you know yeah. I, I wasn't old enough to even know what comic book was at the at that age yeah so i didn't read this until i was in high school yeah so by the time i read it 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 obviously like blew my mind yeah and ever since then uh you know when was that i, I probably read it in like the really late 90s when i was in high school so so at this point like it's just been such a it's been a part of my life for such a long time that it's hard to i, I can't really think negatively about it you know like there isn't really anything about it that that feels dated to me yeah yeah i mean it it helps that we read it well after it came out so for us it feels timeless you know Mm -hmm. but it's it'd be interesting to see like i'd like to think i'd like to believe it's still a work that transcends you know generations but I don't know, man. 
we should try to find a 20 year old who has never read it before have him read it and then come onto our show and talk about it i don't know any 20 year olds (laughs) 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 i was gonna i was gonna you know yes and that situation and be like yeah we totally should but then i thought about it i was like i don't i don't know any 20 year olds (laughs) 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 but uh yeah um I mean, if you can make it happen, I'm more than willing to to play that scenario out. Man, I'm not sure if I know any 20-year-olds either. Oh, <laughs> jeez. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's it's a good comic. It's a great ending. Highly recommend it. Yep. And it looks like we have finally reached the end of another episode. Do you have any final statements you would like to present uh we were gonna try to do a segment on this but i'm I'm just gonna do it in one one sentence uh in terms of worst endings ultimate ultimatum the ultimatum had the worst ending that period. was a pretty bad comic <laughs> yeah <laughs> you don't need to know anything about it just that <laughs> it's another jeff Loeb comic <laughs> yeah yeah man it feels like we're really uh bashing jeff Loeb today well make better comics and i won't talk crap about you <laughs> just simple as that it really is don't be a murderer i won't put you in jail (laughs) Uh, is that so hard thanks for listening everybody this is between the gutters peacing out signing off guys